The Max Cole report is tip of the iceberg. Where our council have let people down who voted them into power is they have not got best value for a fact. And they have put their friendships beyond that of the people that voted them into power. It's pretty damning that this corruption wasn't just Joe Anderson. It seemed to be endemic within the council itself. Where Keir Starmer's made a massive error of judgment. He should have suspended anyone that touched Joe's table. And this time, for whatever reason, I think this is going to be the biggest case of fraud and corruption ever found in the UK. Can I prove it legally? No, but I'm not a detective. Do I think they're corrupt? Yes. Do I think that inclusion with the darkened world of gangsters and, and fraud and corruption? Of course I do. Liverpool is the centre of drugs for Europe. Yeah, possibly putting my life at risk. Well, I know it put my life at risk because I had police outside here for 24-7 for six weeks for threats on both mine and my wife's life. Lawrence Kenwright. Liverpool's Donald Trump. <laughs> Welcome to Eyes Wide Open. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on the show. And uh, here we are in the Shankly Hotel, uh, working operative hotel in Liverpool. And you've come on to tell me about what's going on in Liverpool with the hotel business in Liverpool. Maybe some of the corruption and fraud that's happening behind the scenes in the council and beyond. Lawrence Kenwright, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So, how's it going? Tell me, tell me what it's like running uh, the Shankly right now, because I know that you've had quite a difficult period with COVID, and it closed down a lot of your operation, and you've, you know, come through it. And here we are now. You're back in the Shankly. Tell us, tell us how it's gone for you and well, what's happening now. It would probably be remiss of me not to mention Brexit first, because Brexit was the biggest issue even though you know whether you politically wanted to leave or or remain uh, what basically happened when government went against parliament with that 400 200 vote in august uh, and then the election ensued thereafter it basically said to the rest of the world you know we don't know what we're doing and people didn't want to park their cash in the uk and the uk has an awful lot of cash from china now Russia, maybe mm -hmm. not for long, mm -hmm. um, that gets parked here. So an awful lot of my investment came from those shows and that just stopped overnight. And then- So Brexit slowed down the investment into Liverpool and the hotel business? Enormously. Wow, I didn't know that. Enormously, like beyond what you could ever imagine. Mm. And then the money was gonna come after the election. Boris obviously won December 12th, so 13th. And then everyone goes on holiday, coming up to Christmas, all the solicitors go away. We just put in uh, to, to sell Shankly and James Street for a sale agreed of 48 million for the two. It was all going through Savills, the estate agents, and it was all, it was all, it was all okay. Uh, the deal was back on in January, but then when January came, uh, so did COVID not long after. Uh, Double whammy. And then, and then we got, it's like come off the canvas, you've just been knocked to the ground and then you get up again, you get it with an overhand right, you fall down again. Yeah. Um, that was really, really difficult. Um, and then we clearly we had to close. I thought we were closing for three weeks. Mm. Uh, at the time, we met up with a extremely large fund, probably one of the biggest privately held equity funds in Europe. Uh, they gave us a very good deal for us to amalgamate with them uh, we would be 50-50 partners, huge amounts of money. And when I went to see him for the fifth time, he said, 
it's off. I said, yeah, it'll be close to three weeks. He said, it's two years. So they told you it was two years up front? And he's an Etonian. Uh, and he's Etonian or Evertonian. There's not many Evertonians in London, I don't think, where the money is. But uh, he, he was he was an Etonian. He, he you know he, he clearly knew the ministers. He clearly knew Boris. He he was he's an eight billion guy. You know he's he's up there. Uh, and he said no, it's a two year gig. Yeah, and it and it came to pass. His and prediction he, came to pass. Spot on. Yeah. So so now the COVID phase is over. Are you finding that business is returning to Liverpool? Because I've got my own kind of story with that i was in the um, service departments you were the the, the model for was it. i the inspiration you were the inspiration yeah you were the, <laughs> the default inspiration yeah that's why i mean i was trying to get some inside info from you know but but uh, during covid i mean i pretty much lost most of my stock and i moved off into a different business and it was a heavy heavy period and and a business i took you know five years to build it was over in a week it was like collapsed quicker than uh, you know the twin towers um so I must have been a lot worse for you. You know, your stock and your portfolio was much, much bigger than mine. And uh, and uh, how did you, how did you handle having to let go of that stock, that portfolio, or a lot of it? Was it a tough time for you on a personal level? I think that's an understatement. That yeah. the, uh, I, I think I'm, I've gone through some tough times during business, and that's what entrepreneurs do. They, yeah. they, they ride the storm, but that was. A storm like no other. Mm. That that was no option. No chance. hospitality was hit hardest than, well, than, the, the, than most other business sectors, wasn't it? Biggest dip recession yeah. ever mm. in the worst hit like sector. Yeah. In the worst hit sector yeah. ever. Mm. Um, and the people that knew knew that this was a two-year gig. Uh, obviously, that information came to me, but I didn't really believe it. Didn't mm. think it was going to be two years because how could anyone survive in two years? The problem what all hotels have is every single hotel now has lost an awful lot of businessmen now. Mm. So they've lost at least 25% of their business users. Now for most hotels, that's their midweek user gone down to a level of making a loss. Mm. You couple that with, your, that's your backbone. You couple that with the fact that your hotel will say maybe we're 10 million pounds before. You've dropped 25% of your valuation pretty much overnight. Mm. Hotels work on a model of 70% loan to value. So if you, you, you had a, a hotel value of 10 million, you'd have 70% loan to value, so 7 million pound borrowings with your bank. Most hotels have MES level on top, which is another 15%. So you have a 10 million pound valuation, you've got eight and a half million pound borrowings against it. Mm. But the hotel sector's just dropped by 25%. So you can't pay your bills? So no worse than that. You're a million pound under, which means you're insolvent. Yeah. On top of that, you've got a Sybil's loan which you've used. Yeah. On top of that, you've got losses that you just incurred for the last two years. So you've got a massive hole in your P&L and your bricks and mortar is now £1 million under. And the banks aren't really going to give you leeway, are they? It's fuck you, pay me. Oh, no. So it's a little bit different than that. It's a fun-to-fail thing, isn't it? Yeah. This is, you know, where um, the predator comes in yeah. and devours. Mm. And it's like they're, it's like they're sitting on the, the the banks of the savannah, isn't it? Waiting for this opportunity. You know, have you ever seen that picture of the vulture of the dying kid, and it's waiting? It's just sitting there waiting. I felt like this was a prime moment for banks to do what they do. So, so, so it's that case of win-win, isn't it? Yeah. A bank wins by putting whatever it is, four, five, six percent on top of their loan. Some of them are a lot more than that now. Mm. New hotels can't even get um, credit card facilities now because there's so much underwater. The sector is finished, it's like retail. Mm. 
hotel groups now are um, trying to in, ensure that they bring in new funding very quickly, but the discount they have to give to the valuation in order to gain that new funding is like beyond what I've ever seen before. Mm. The sector at this moment of time, if banks, which they won't because they've done this in 2007, they revalued the sector, all sectors got revalued at that time. Down value. And, and always yeah. when there's negativity, values okay. will always down value because yeah. they need to look after their insurance. Yeah. They haven't asked that to happen this time. Mm. This time, it's about pressure from every single angle you can think of. You've got rates to pay, you've got a big black hole there, you've got your uh, ROI, your return on investment to your investors or to your, your fund. You have debts in there, civil loans in there, a decreased valuation. You have a huge hole that if you're allowed to be optimistic, as a director, you're allowed to be optimistic, but there comes a point where HMRC will be able to turn around and say, you were too far gone there. Mm. You carried on, you incurred more losses. Fuck you, pay me. We're going to make sure that the, the guidance or, or the perimeter that is around you as a director of a company, that limited liability then is taken away and therefore we're going to jump over the garden fence mm. and we're going to come after you personally. Mm. So that's what you've got to start so they, taking on they board. they punch through the corporate veil to go after you on a personal level. Not you personally, but I mean, it, 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 that's if, what it, their tactics are. If they can prove that you were at a loss yeah. and you can state, you know, I'm, I'm being optimistic uh, as, as a businessman, but there will become a point where they're that's beyond optimism. Yeah. And then HMRC is beyond governance of police in some ways because... They've got more powers, haven't they? You've yeah. got to make sure that you prove that you are innocent. So to the way around, you're guilty until proven innocent. <laughs> so, so they will estimate. Yeah. And then, it's, so like, let's just say you, you're in a fit of depression. Yeah. You, 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 your life's work's gone down the drain. You've got, you know, the, the assets that you've got are not worth any money anymore. You've got no cash. You can't pay nothing back. You're under severe pressure. And then they, the letters start coming in from HMRC. Well, it's a fair to say, isn't it, that you might not open those letters. Mm. And maybe you're a bit scared of opening them up. So a month goes to two months, and then they start evaluating what your debt is. Mm -hmm. When they start evaluating what your debt is and you don't answer that, then it becomes set in stone. It gets passed on to another department. When it goes to another department, they don't know why that evaluation was made or how it was made or what reasoning was behind it. They don't care. Mm. It goes to another department, they just chase. Mm. And when they chase, they chase. And all of a sudden, you, you, you as a businessman, you've gone from having a nice little business, nice little hotel, mm. nice income, nice life. The to, wolves are at the door. To an absolute nightmare. nightmare. So it, it didn't just hit you on a um, personal level. Is that Liverpool had reinvented itself largely over the past 20 years as a tourist destination, as a place for people to come from all over the country and come to Liverpool for a good time. It's a small, compact city. You can party all night here and you know, have a great time here. And, you know, part of what you were offering was to be able to give people a good time, a, an experience in Liverpool and that tourism you know, which helped to rebuild the city. Yeah. It got smashed, it got absolutely hammered during those two years, and it was like, well, what else are we gonna do here without without the tourism? Have you found that now has, um, we've weathered the storm, and that level of tourism is starting to come back to the city? Do you think it's gonna come back to the levels it was before COVID hit? So I, I would say it's 15 years. Mm -hmm. So since uh, Liverpool One was first opened in 2008, so in 2008, I think that was the rebirth. Yeah. Um, capital culture was 2008 in Liverpool, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, but, but Liverpool won. I mean, capital culture, yeah, to the more sophisticated probably 
um, so the clientele that would come to the city. But, but that was like a signal, wasn't it? It was a signal to international investors. Time to put some money into Liverpool. We're, we're all looking at it. Yeah. yeah. But the, the original sort of splurge, if you like, into mm. that sector was based upon Liverpool One coming. When Liverpool One coming, uh, a, a, a tidal wave of new um, guests to the city that probably would never have come, then sort of, shall we go to Liverpool? Because Liverpool, like, before that time, was still like, calm down, calm down, yeah. f- fake wig, yeah. fake moustache, uh, am I going to lose the wheels on, on, yeah, on so the car? The legacy of the 80s was still hanging on, wasn't it? And Very much so. 2008 was the, the renaissance of the city. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, that 2008, I think, was the start of, of, sort of us being a tourist destination. And we were probably about 8th or 9th, when mm-hmm. I'm 5th. Um, and I would say, if you'd have told me that 15 years ago that we would be number five tourist destination mm. in the UK, I'd have laughed mm. and I said not a chance. Someone needs to take credit for that, don't they, as well? Because if it was at a council level, we'll get to the council a little bit. I mean, who was, was it Mike Story? Was he instrumental in turning Liverpool into a tourist destination? Or was it, just think it was just a collective move by yeah. the people in the city ready, ready to reinvent themselves? I don't even think back in those dark days, I don't think that, um, any politician had that type of insight okay. at all. So uh, everyone was just hustling and trying to find Yeah, so through, yeah. if I can just go back to that 2008, that's when I opened as well. I was just going to say, so what were you doing in 2008? So um, I'd just gone broke with um, a cluster of apartments that I ended up buying back. Um, so would you reinvent yourself as well during this yeah, period? Because to- well, I know you had different businesses, didn't you, before this period? You were, you were in retail. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was in retail before hated it yeah uh, i used to get up at three o'clock in the morning drive down to london in the van uh, with a sack full of money buy a load of what we call cabbage put it in the back of the van get back to liverpool probably at 12 at night offload the van put it into the shops You're speaking in code yeah <laughs> sorry sorry <laughs> go on <laughs> put it into into the stores yeah. you know for me to deliver Deliver it the next day without going to bed. Mm. And then end, end up delivering it and then going to bed 36 hours later. So that would be my life for mm. 20 years. 20 years, okay. Yeah, so I... Had a hate, good run? Had a great run. And, and, you know, it was really good. And Primark come along and the price differential from what I was selling my stock for to what Primark was selling. We were still cheaper than Primark, but my prices were... Um, so did they, did they globalise? Uh, um, discount. Know, yeah. Discount clothing and made mm. it cool, if you like. They made it cool, but they also um, they they also brought it down ten notches. Did they squash a lot of the competition? They squashed everyone. Yeah. Um, so where I'd be like four pounds for whatever it was, trousers or whatever it may be, and and say Mark Spencer might be in sixteen pounds, say mm. uh, they would be six and I'd be four. So the the point of difference wasn't good enough, I don't think, yeah. for me to survive. Anyway. Uh, it wasn't about me surviving, really. It was more about me disliking that job and, mm. and doing it for 20 years. And I think I built up to 30-odd shops. And I had 450 staff. I had a factory in Sri Lanka. I had a factory in wow. Manchester, a factory in Liverpool. Cool. I had that when I was 26. So I was a, I was a born entrepreneur. I was a guy that, that, that ran into mm. um, business without, without, fear, without fear. Yeah. Uh, which actually... It's quite fearful. Yeah. Does it go wrong at any moment, can't it? And you only learn that when you get older. Yeah, yeah. Or when you go through a pandemic. Um, I mean, that's part of, part of the excitement of being an entrepreneur, though, isn't it? Is that you're prepared to take on the risk that most people wouldn't even consider in a day. So you have the highs and you have the lows, and that's all part of the journey, part of the fun. And also say, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. 
uh, and anyway, so the, the point being that I then made quite a bit of money out of the retail, yep. put it into property, and then lost a lot. I then bought it back. When I bought it back, I decided to put 14 beds into one, when it was 16 beds into one duplex apartment, and I realised group accommodation was okay, the way so forward. Okay, so let me just interrupt you there, because that's I think, is an important point, because I think one of the things that you are most well-known for is your um, pioneering... Uh, energy within this sector of being able to attract groups to Liverpool and offer group rooms and groups. Is, is that your view based on your that's, knowledge? That's my view. Yeah, that, yeah. that you're the pioneer okay. of that concept, as far yeah. as I understand it. Right. Yeah. You can tell me otherwise in a second, but so so so, tell me about how you came up with the idea of putting 16 beds in a in an apartment. Why did you think there was a market there for a 16 bed? Room. So, so just to come back maybe um, six months before that, um, I went to bed for three months when I lost everything. Yeah, uh, I couldn't turn on a computer before, because I always had staff to do those sort of sort of so, tasks. So, so you, you were depressed for three months. Oh, gone. Yeah, yeah, gone. No, we need as depressed as what I'm saying. So you've had a, you've had experience. <laughs> this of the, yeah, this, this is a whole <laughs> new level of depression. Yeah. This is this is really bad. Yeah. Because then I wasn't known, now I am known. Yeah. You know, I might There's be known state. around the UK, but I'm known certainly in Liverpool. So um, I realised that social media was going to be the thing. Yeah. Uh, and I knew that groups were going to get bigger. And so when I had the opportunity to put beds, I put more beds in mm. um, than what would be normal. But then I would cloud that like bed issue, if you like, with a an extreme design so i also knew that when someone went into a bedroom in a hotel they tend to throw the bags and move on so let's use travel as, as the extreme of that of that sort of offer a very vanilla very normal very standardized uh, offer you throw your bags and you, and you make a room for it you go around the city i thought that there was an opportunity to make a bigger room put more beds in but make the room the experience not so much the hotel reception mm. so every room had to have what I would call three sharp edges. Okay. And those sharp edges led to a boastful play. A boastful play would be you picking up your phone, taking your picture with the backdrop, doing whatever you do to the picture. Instagrammable rooms. Stick it out right away. I'm, I'm giving you yeah. no longer a bed. I'm giving you your boastful play on Instagram. So, so, so you were selling, rather than putting heads on beds, you were putting plenty of heads on beds. Yeah. You were selling an experience yeah. guest experience which I think that's one of the things you were a pioneer of in Liverpool that's what I pioneered yeah. Yeah. I didn't pioneer group because you had plenty of groups Yeah, there was plenty of people doing groups at the time whether it be hostels or whatever so that was out there but it was a different type of groups wasn't it this was like glamorous this was like you know a gang of girls really a gang yeah. of lads coming to Liverpool to enjoy a stag party or mm. a hen party and you being able to offer them one space for them all to be in and yeah. enjoy their experience in Liverpool which I thought was quite a unique so, so let me let me evolve on that so um, very clear uh, early on I realised that Newcastle was a stag yeah. central and Liverpool wasn't anything. So, you, so did that, okay, so that was one of the inspirations, was it? So I, I believe yeah. I created Liverpool to be a hem party yeah. centre. Yeah. So all of my rooms are quite effeminate. They're all quite pink or flowery or whatever did it may you be. You designed them as well. And I designed every one of them, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, apart, apart from um, a few bedrooms were designed by one of my friend's daughters 
who came in to help me. Okay. Um, and she was very, very good. Mm. Um, they're, the, they're the only ones, there's a few of them in here that will be done maybe, that way. Maybe Liverpool's Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen rather than Donald Trump there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah well, <laughs> who knows. So anyway, going back to the point, the point being that I didn't create the group accommodation concept, but I did create the experience bedroom because yeah. 99.9% of all bedrooms are all vanilla. Yeah. There's no thought or there's well, nothing. Yours you know, were all individual and each one was different, wasn't well, it? So well, that's based, on, that's based on the Hilton model, the Hilton model of wherever you go in the world. I'm going back 20 years. Yeah. Wherever you go in the world, and we only had the yellow pages then, wherever you go in the world, you know you've walked into a Hilton. Yeah. I think that's detrimental to the, those brands now. Because I don't think that normality is what people want anymore because no one's going to ever boast about normality. Mm. And if you're not going to boast about the place you stay, you're probably not going to book it. So you have an option where you've got a boastful play within a bedroom rather than a vanilla bedroom where you've got no boastful play. Yeah. You're getting that for free. Mm. So you can stay in your room 50% longer in our bedrooms than what you well, would do in normal one. That's where the party is, isn't it? To a large degree, well, it's in the room with so the girls, getting ready to go out, coming back, all that sure. kind of thing. So, so say you've got, on average, our, our rooms have got 10 bed spaces in each one. We know our guests stay in that bedroom 50% longer than a normal standardised bedroom. Mm. We also know that they'll take five pitches on average. So you've got 10 people times five pitches times on average 500 people. It's 25,000 people. A night, every night, getting hit by every single bedroom seamlessly without prompt, mm. without me stating, oh, you take a picture. So your customers become your marketers in a sense they're, -to -peer they're, marketing. they're ecstatic fans aren't mm. they and they're you know sharing images of your building your experience on their social media so if you go back to 20 25 years ago yeah. and um, you were going to advertise i don't know lauren perry or whatever it may be and you put it on itv say you probably get 25 percent of all the punters that are watching the tv at that time now because tv is so fragmented there's millions of options now for channels so the advertising dollar is not no longer based on TV. It's not based on radio, and it's certainly not based on newspaper. Social media. It's social media. Mm. So social media took that over. So when you ask, or when sorry, when you gain interaction seamlessly from a peer-to-peer -peer play, that is the ambenector to everything. That is um, key because we've all seen how influencers have fell off their pedestal in the last couple of years. Whereas five years ago, uh, influencers were really important to social media in selling product. Now it's, pff, I know you don't use that. Whereas John, who comes to our hotel and stays and takes his pictures in our hotel, there's no extra grind with John. John is just sharing his experience in a very normal manner. Mm. And that normal experience or that normal process of sharing that experience actually is, is the secret ingredient to us filling our hotels because every single time we have, a, a, let's say, an event on, I notice thousands of pictures going out, getting shared thousands of times without us doing a damn thing. Mm. But we gain the benefit of it's that. viral, isn't it, without you having to spend any without money doing anything. <laughs> And that's why we came number five out of 33,000 hotels mm. um, as the most Instagrammable hotel. And the only hotels that beat us were the Ritz, Savoy, Lanesborough and the Ned. They're all billion-pound hotels, by the way. They're all in London. We're the only one outside of London. We were the top out of all those. So that was a huge win for us because so when did you know, that's how we fill our rooms. So when did you know, right, that this innovation that you brought to Liverpool, and I, and I believe that you did, right? Yeah. Um, when did you know that you struck the jackpot with this idea? Because, you know, 
it's not only you doing it now. You, you spawned a load of copycats. I was one of them. Right? You spawned a load of copycats, and everyone was getting a piece of the pie because there was so much business coming into Liverpool. You couldn't provide enough rooms for that for all of them. So there was enough to go around for a lot of other people and helped build the local economy. And times were good, and everyone was having a good time. I mean. When did you realise that you had struck, struck the jackpot and that you could repeat this concept? Because there was a period where you were on, you know, full conquest, wasn't it? You know, you were opening hotels left, right and centre in um, Cardiff, in Belfast and other places. And you're pretty much using this model that you had pioneered. Well, tell me about when you knew you'd struck gold. Gold is the wrong way, but when you knew it was a winner. So the, the um, apartments that we bought back... Uh, when I lost everything and we bought every single one back um, there was one apartment there that had like say 16 beds in it and Kate was uh, in control of, of filling the rooms I was creating a noise so I was creating um, uh, videos and I was creating um, I was doing content writing so I was chasing search terms you, you know what I mean mm -hmm. by that don't you mm -hmm. do you think your punters know what I mean by yeah. that yeah Yeah. so I was chasing search terms so it was a search you, term you, you might there. want to explain it though so let's say Google back in the day uh, it was really important to identify what your key search terms what yeah. your punters would probably search for and what would they search give us an example let's say party apartments in Liverpool yeah Yeah. so I would then create lots of content on party apartments so i would create a 3000 word document yeah. um, blog if you like on party apartments i would then create a party apartment video on youtube i would also seo search engine optimization uh, the video and also the blog i would embed the video onto the blog and then when the google spiders went over it mm. uh, they would know that that was specific to that search term unlike websites would be on multiple search terms mm. i know it's complicated but that's that's what I done yeah. to ensure that we dominated search. Yeah. So you owned certain search terms like yeah. specific to me in Liverpool or uh, group yeah. accommodation all those in words, Liverpool. Yeah. yeah. All those words. Yeah. So I understood that very early on. Yeah. So because I was an online guy, all be self-taught, I then understood about backdrops. I then understood about pictures. I then understood about um, what 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 is known as wabi-sabi, mm. slight imperfections. What are those things that you... It's a Japanese one where you smash it, put it back together and... What are the slight imperfections? What are those things that you go... I've won. Yeah. When I get that, I've won. Yeah. When someone walks into a bedroom and goes, oh, God, I should we make this. Mm. I've won. When someone wants to recount going to Liverpool 10 years on and speaks about their experience of going into a bedroom that had a secret bathroom, that had a pig's head coming out of the wall or angel wings coming off the wall and flowers and whatever experience i own space in your your yeah. mind then for 10 years as opposed to a travelers that you can never remember yeah you will never remember so i understood that space mm. very 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 early on um, and then I, I just gained in confidence of being more extreme so before i knew it, i was building um roman bats down the middle of bedrooms with 12 bedrooms well, off. Wasn't there one in James Street with that big, you know, huge, like, like mini swimming pool inside the room, was it? The one I lost. Yeah, you won't bring we'll, it up the one I we'll lost. Get to, we'll get to that <laughs> one in a minute. The baby. <laughs> so that one was really important because, um, uh, obviously, home, home of the Titanic, it was the... Well, we'll come to that in a minute, okay. St. James Street. Sorry, okay. I was just talking about the idea that you were taking rooms to extremes, right, in terms of, like, the individualness. And there was one, I think, in St. James Street that, that, that was, like, a huge jacuzzi in there, was it? Like, uh, well, it, it, it was a swim pool, and... Um, it was in the room? It, no. All oh, right. It, no, okay. so, so, so I'll, I'll quickly explain what that was. It was a room with... Um, 
I think it was 24 bed spaces. At seven o'clock, the concierge would come in with a gold key on a gold cushion and and say, theatrically, ladies and gentlemen, your room awaits you. (laughs) He would walk over to the walk-in safe, uh, like the original one, uh, and put the key in the door and turn the handles and open this massive two-ton door. And embedded in the floor was a circular hole with a steel spiral staircase cascading to the floor below. So before you know it, you've got all these stilettos going down, the, you know, this spiral staircase going down. And then they would go into the spa area, so the spa area would be part of your room. Yeah. These sort of things have never been done before. Yeah, it was unique, wasn't it? it was totally, totally unique. unique. Yeah. And that led to your massive success, that period. It was mm-hmm. like, you know, you were on fire, everything yeah. you touched turned to gold. And, you know, you expanded really quickly in Liverpool. Your face was everywhere. You were Mr. Liverpool for one point. Um, at during the height of that, you know, expansion. 14-year period, that, by the way. So 14, it wasn't as quick as what you think. Okay, right. Yeah. So 14-year period. And um, you had a number of um, amazing hotels in Liverpool. But we'll focus on St. James Hotel. 30 James Street. 30 James yeah. Street, yeah. Yeah. which was an iconic, or is an iconic building in Liverpool, right on the pierhead. Amazing architecture that laid empty for decades. And you came in, and this became something of a signature thing for you, wasn't it? It was mm-hmm. finding old, uh, derelict buildings in Liverpool that had mm-hmm. been left to rack and ruin. Mm-hmm. And you came in and, you know, you did your thing on it. Tell us about James Street as a so, project. Um, James Street was forlorn for 20 years, and the last user was a drug rehab centre. Uh, it didn't make economic sense. That's why, that's why these buildings lay there forlorn, because no one truly understands what the cost would be and normally uh, developers are normally ivory tower developers. Nearly all developers don't do what I do. No, they knock it down and rebuild, don't they? No, you, well, you can't, so you can't with a list of building. You can't do that. Oh, right, okay. So, but what I mean by that is they'll bring in a, 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 another builder, if you like, and then the builder will have to quote for any eventuality and a margin. So, and then he would subcontract out again, and they would do the same within their sector, any eventuality and a margin. So one pound ends up becoming three. Unless you do it yourself. Now, you know, there's plenty of bloody noses doing these things on your, uh, by, by yourself because you, you have to take on all the issues of a building, asbestos and whatever it may be. But that should have been £10 million to refurb and it only had a £10 million valuation. We'd done it for £6 million and we ended up with a £13.7 million valuation. Mm. And we turned it into the most occupied... So from dedilection to the most occupied hotel uh, in the city, bar none, it was 96% full. And was that a group model as well? It, it, it was probably the, it was the start of a flamboyant hotel, not so developed on groups, but more developed on backdrops, as in, you know, that's the wall, take your picture, go and take your picture in that wall, go and do it in 10 different places, and go and share it online. It's got, a, it's got a connection to the Titanic, you were going to say before, isn't it, that building? It, it is the only building in the world, yeah. the only building in the world, and we, and we don't rejoice in it enough. Uh, that actually can be called the home of the Titanic because it's where the vessel was registered to. Wow. J.P. Morgan once owned it amazing. when he bought the White Star Line. Uh, and there's an amazing story about uh, the rivalry between White Star Titanic and the Cunard and the two chairmans and how they cascaded together even though they were shooting buddies of a weekend but worst of enemies in, in, in work and there's lots of stories like that with like Microsoft and Apple and Puma and Adidas you know with these two businesses uh, are so um, uh, involved in their rivalry they sharpen the tools so sharp that when they cascade to the highest highs 
which these companies did, they look around them and say, where's the competition? Because the, the rivalry's so fierce. And, and that was one of those rivalries. In 1934, the Cunard um, ended up taking over White Star Line. J.P. Morgan had long died. J.P. Morgan, just so you know, created the Federal Bank. Yeah. So we created the dollar. Yeah, he's the, the guy who created. Reserve, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's the guy for that. Yeah. So you know, really important guy. Dodgy though. <laughs> <laughs> Have a little look at J.P. Morgan. He's dodgy, yeah. man. Well, you, yeah. you know, you know, when he died, you know how much of his own business he owned. Not. He owned twenty percent. Right. The Rothschilds owned the other eighty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, anyway, yeah. anyway, well, right, we, we digress. That's a tangent for another day. That one, isn't it? <laughs> so uh, anyway, grab us all that one. More, quick. Uh, more, like, more like a volcano. That one, isn't it? Real back, quick. <laughs> uh, so uh, Cunard took, took over um, White Star Line, and what's really strange is in 1934. As those two businesses collided and, and obviously uh, amalgamated because of uh, aeroplane was now the main yeah. mode of transport for uh, delivering letters and whatever. There, yeah. um, and you can see the demise of these two companies, but you also see the demise of Liverpool. Mm. Interesting, isn't it? Technology you know, uh, totally transformed what appeared to be a rock solid business model with the Cunard and the White Star, mm. you know, was, they couldn't have been doing any better. And all of a sudden with aviation, pff, brought it to an end. Yeah. And Liverpool had one of its downturns as a result, because it's had quite a few ups and downs, Liverpool, hasn't it, in its time? I don't think it's ever got back to the 1934 heights, mm. uh, you know, because we were number two city then. Yeah, and it was we, the gateway of the empire, wasn't it? Yeah, so yeah. We've, we've certainly um, had it far tougher than probably what our ancestors would have thought. Mm. I think, you know, with the demise of the Hatton era, what went went on there, that was... But well, the 60s began it, really, didn't they? The, 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 the docks, when the docks ended as the main source of income for, for Liverpool, and the decline began to happen then, you know, from the 60s up to the 80s, when that was the, you know, the final well, I, I, nail I, I, in the coffin. I, I personally don't think the 60s was the demise, because my dad was a docker. Uh, it was containerisation yeah, yeah. that killed it off, but that was yeah. a bit later on than the 60s. Yeah. Uh, I was born in 65, my, uh, my, my dad was a docker right the way through to the 80s. Mm. Uh, and I think when containerization come and it all went off to Felixstowe, that was the end of the 20,000 dockers that worked there at the time. But do you reckon you know, one of the reasons that happened was the EU? The EU moved you know, the, uh, the containerization to other parts of the EU. There, so there, there were other complications, don't forget, we silted up in, in, yeah, in the Mersey and, yeah. and it went, you know, Southampton. But there's talk that Liverpool's ships. docks could be reborn if, you know, under a Brexit Britain, whatever that is, I don't even know what, what that means anymore, but that, that one of the reasons was the EU just moved it. Well, I think it is fair to say, and, and I'm, I'm not in any way, you know, shouting off for Trump here, but if Trump would have stayed in power, yeah. uh, that America, um, UK, treaty. absolutely would have been like mm. the, well, America's 26% well, of the total Brexit spend. almost feels like a distant memory, doesn't it? It's like we've come so far over such a short period of time because, you know, Brexit happened and then COVID hit. What was, what was Brexit? No, no Bre yeah. Brexit was absolutely enormous. Yeah. And we lost £80 billion with a turnover in a year, just, just over that. We went from the fifth biggest, sixth, fifth biggest economy to the sixth. France took our fifth place mm. because of that. By the way, I think it now is the best thing we'll ever do. Mm. And I do think the the, the America-UK uh, trade, America being 26%, European, Europe being 16%. Obviously, we're better spent taking our time with the Americans rather than Europe. Um, I know we're close to Europe, but that, to me, would be the better play for us. And when I say us, I mean Liverpool. Yeah. 
I don't really care about the rest of the UK. I only care about Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Now, Liverpool, would, that would be the best play for us. So when, when Donald Trump was voted out, Biden took over, Biden and Obama never liked the UK. You know, they never well, they wanted want to... The that's, that's what they want to deal with, one, one unit, uh, entity, don't they? They want uh, one world economy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously people like Trump, they're, they're populists. Uh, and, and in some ways, I'm a populist because uh, I, I believe in Liverpool having its own economy. I believe in Liverpool looking after its own. I think in Liverpool creating its own um, funds, its own profitability. Um, and I think that is something that is cascaded by having a mayor, but then we have our problems with our mayors and, you yeah. know, ultimate power corrupts absolutely and you've got all those arguments as well. So it's very complex, mm. but I think overall, taking away all the anomalies, what's happened over the last couple of years, I do think Liverpool is best served with a mayor and I do think we have to find someone who is good enough, strong enough and knowledgeable enough and it shouldn't be a politician. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the juicy bit about the mayor in a bit, right? Let's just finish up on, uh, on uh, your, your kind of path to where we are now because uh, it's relevant I think to establish those facts and that part of the story so when we move into what actually happened with the council because it's really interesting and I think it's important for us to understand the steps that got you there <clears throat> so you had this amazing success uh, you know you the signature living brand was all kinds of different spokes to its um, you know core concept and then you took an interest in politics not so, not specifically, but in terms of local politics, how it affects local people, and you became concerned with the situation that you were observing in the city, and you believed that it could be done better, and you weren't shy about vocalising your opinions on that, which I thought was really quite ballsy at the time, because you know you were having a go, you were having a pop, and you were criticising the people that needed to be criticised, because the media sure as hell weren't doing it. Um, and I think that's why the Donald Trump tag works because not only are you the property developer, but you've got a hotel. You live in your own hotel and you're teetotal. So I think <laughs> I, I think I think the comparisons are, are, are there, and you're a populist, like you've just said. So you move into a different phase of your operation, and I believe it kind of came from the work that you did with the homeless because mm. that was something that was. Uh, unexpected, really, I think, because you, this became something of a course celebrate for you. It was something you're really passionate about. And you took on this challenge that the council certainly weren't doing properly of trying to find a solution to the growing homeless issue that we were facing in Liverpool. Because, you know, that's relatively new, isn't it? This level of homelessness on the streets. I mean, we didn't see so much of it, you know, in the 80s. I can't really remember much about that. It seems to be more like a modern problem. Mm. Um, And no one seems to have the answer to it. It just keeps growing and and getting worse. Um, Tell me about how you found yourself involved in this, you know, quite controversial area of, you know, what's going on in society. So I'm an entrepreneurial socialist. It's what I believe in. So I believe in being entrepreneurial, but I also believe in naturally giving back without, without um, doing social platform mm. posts. I don't believe that's the right thing to do. So um, I come from uh, a very, very poor background. I come from a place called Walton. Um, my dad was a docker. He lost a leg. We lived on invalidity benefits. Um, so we, we had it really tough. Uh, growing up, um, 
And, and for people who don't know, Liverpool's a very left-wing city, isn't it? Yeah. Liverpool is a socialist city because yeah. it is deprived mm. and it's probably one of the most deprived areas. Especially then. Especially then, yeah. I mean, even now, though, the, the 2008 redevelopment of Liverpool was pretty much the city centre. It didn't deal with the north of Liverpool. No. It's still, you know, half derelict and falling yeah. down. It's, it's a disgrace, really, that yeah. the, 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 the council haven't done anything about it. So Walton is one of those really deprived areas of Liverpool. But I think that time in my life, being a 15-year-old guy, uh, having to leave school without qualifications because we couldn't afford to live properly, mm. um, knowing that my dad had one leg and we lived on invalidity benefits and my mum my mom was a coat worker. So credentials as, as a Labour guy, and I'm still a Labour member today, yeah. uh, coat worker for a mum and a docker as a dad, doesn't get you know any better or worse than that way you want to put it. So my first job was shove, shoveling full of earth, which is manure, I had to do that eight ton a day. And I realized very early on that that wasn't what I wanted to do. And then obviously I've been entrepreneurial and you know by a very young age, I've got a lot of retail stores and staff and factories. And then before I know it, I've got properties. And then, and then I'm a hotelier. God knows how I got here, <laughs> but I ended up being a hotelier. And I think I forgot myself along the way. Okay. So that's interesting. Why, what made you think that? Because of the success and the attention and the glory and all those things. Started believing in me on bullshit. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm like you said before. You know, everything turned to gold, and you know, mm. I'm amazing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But I'm not. Yeah. So. So it sounds like you, those those uh, stumbles that you've had along the way have been real good learning curves for you. Learning yeah. Well, about yourself. I, I, the learning curve I got from the homeless shelter that I created was extremely emotional to me yeah, uh, and hit me like a ton of bricks. I didn't believe for a minute that this sort of shit went on. Mm. I knew, obviously politically, I knew what sort of monies were getting spent. I knew our council spent 11.7 million a year. On what, on the homeless issue? On the homeless issue. 11.7 11 million. 11.7 million. I also knew that a hundred of our people went to rehab a year at 12 grand a pop. A hundred of people from Liverpool get sent to rehab? A hundred. Uh, funded by funded by the council, um, and pretty mu much none of them are successful. And is that because I, John, how are you? Good to see you back. Uh, and so I didn't understand any There's of no this. No incentive really for to, to no, get they, them off. They're delighted, yeah. So I didn't really understand the process, and I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't understand about homelessness and, and the plight and the issues and and austerity because I lived in a hotel. Yeah. Why would I know? Okay. So one day I got a call and, and I'm reasonably handy. So, you know, I go downstairs and I handle most things myself. So I go downstairs and there's... Downstairs here? Yeah. In the Shankly? Yeah, I've got three floors of car park that sit underneath so, here. So it's just here, isn't it? It is, the yeah. car park. Yeah, so yeah. That's the location that, yeah, yeah. that started it. So there were, there were a few guys, because nine, nine, nine out of every ten is male. And nine out, of every ten, nine out of every ten is drugs. Maybe eight out of ten, two, the other two being alcoholics. And they'd run around the car park where I have kids and my kids go and, and needles hanging up their arms and all that sort of stuff. So aggressively, I'm dragging them out of the car park. And as I'm taking up the, the last ramp going out into the cold air, it must have been minus five. It was bitter. Hmm. And I'm looking at these guys and it's ingrained dirt, it's no teeth, you know, it's, a, it's the full thing. And in my ears, uh, it, ringing is Joe's bullshit. 
Mm. Uh, no so, second So, so Joe Anderson we're talking yes. about here, who was, yeah. was the mayor at the time. And a friend. And a friend, okay, we'll get to that in a second, but he's like the longest serving mayor in Liverpool, well, the only, <laughs> the only mayor. Longest serving, <laughs> long, longest serving leader, Politician or outside, leader outside of Nottingham. Yeah, okay. Right, so very controversial figure in the city. We'll now, get to him in a minute. But now it wasn't then. But at that time, you were had a friendly relationship with Joe Anderson. Very close. Yeah, and... So, so you dealt with this homeless situation in your car park under the Shankly, and that caused you to front Joe about this issue and say, "What's no, going on?" No, it's not. It's, no, that, that's not not really what happened. I I saw Joe as an entrepreneurial socialist, so I seamlessly, um, like, cascaded towards him. I yeah. believed in in that what he was dealt. saying. I believed in 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 his his mantra, his understanding of of how the system should work. It didn't work that way, but how it should work. And I believed in him delivering that for the city. So when he said to me, uh, there's only 15, actually, no, first he said to me, there's only 20 homeless in the city. And then I went to a council meeting one day just to understand, because I'm starting to learn about politics. And they all stood up, all the councillors, there's 90 councillors in the pool. The 90 councillors all stood up and gave themselves a round of applause because the number had fell down from 20 to 15. But the day before, I just opened my shelter. Now, my shelter uh, was because of the people downstairs, and I realised how cold it was. Where was the shelter? Did, was it a specific building that you had? Yeah, it was called Kingsway House, which yeah. is about 100 yards from here. So when I realised that these people were real, yeah. that, yes, you know, they may be professional beggars, but they have a, a professional habit. So it is to feed that habit. And when I realised how severe it was, Within two hours, we opened up Kingsway House. Now, when I say we opened it up, we just turned heats on and opened up one of the offices that we had, that we were developing out. It's now finished, now the development, pretty much. But at the time, it was, it was still going for planning, so I had plenty of time with it, and I opened it up. What was the purpose of it? What, what was you trying to achieve? Or what was, it, what was it a service was offering to those people who were vulnerable and desperate? I was offering basic humanity, yeah. warmth, shelter, food. Somewhere to sleep? So I phoned Joe pretty much right away. Marty, the next day. There were 18 people who turned up on the first day, 35 the next, 50 the next, and then 85 on the fourth day. So it blew his 20 out of the water. Well, do you know how they evaluate? And this is, these are the things you learn along the way. How they evaluate who's homeless. They go around at 12 o'clock, when as far as I know, that is peak hour for begging. Mm. And if you're lying on your back, you are homeless. You're not going to be lying on your back because you're begging. You're going to be sitting upright. If you're sitting upright, you are not homeless. That's how they evaluate it. So I, I'm in the middle of, you know, taking in more and more every day, in the middle of the council standing up with a standing ovation because now there's only 15 homeless and, that, and I had 85 within two days after. So I phoned Joe up naively, not realising that Joe had just opened uh, his own homeless shelter the day before, called Labrie House. So did you know this? No. Did Joe see this as an affront, you doing one at the same time? I'm going to come back to this in a minute. Okay. But at the same time, I'm just going to segue off. Go on, yeah. I'm not going to segue off, but I'm just going to tell you, just, just put one in there. Yeah. At the same time, I'm talking to him about possibly running for mayor myself. Okay, so, so that seems like a, a big jump. Was this... Uh, something that your, your interest in becoming a local politician, becoming mayor of Liverpool, was this piqued by this whole homeless experience and feeling as if you could do better than what was going on? Where did this idea of being a, a politician come from? 
Do you want to go there now? Well, I think it might be important because I think okay. that's okay. what you're saying is is that th this is key, you see, I think, in your story because what comes as a result of this, the persecution and harassment that you face later on mm -hmm. is to do with this Without period of, of time. So yeah. I think it's important that we okay. lay the facts down for, for, for that part of the story. So, Joe's way forward with the political and business elite was they came first. And if you visualize a triangle, they'd be at the pinnacle of that triangle. And the base never got looked at. My view was always to turn the triangle upside down. And to me, the most important people were the most vulnerable. And I believe if society looks after the most vulnerable, that's how you will be deemed. So Joe never looked at the most vulnerable. He said he did. I know he didn't. And I'm starting to realize now, as I'm looking to the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable of all, I now realize that it is just a tick box political exercise. Yeah. Do you think Joe, though, seen it as a trickle down concept? He thought, you know, if the business people are investing here, if there's enterprise happening and there's building happening, that it'll trickle down to everybody else. And, and do you okay. think that was what he was focusing on? Or was it something entirely different? <laughs> I mean, there, there are two angles with this. It is something entirely different. But the trickle down dried up before it got down. Yeah. It didn't trickle far. It didn't trickle more than yeah. 60%. Mm. And the people at the very, very bottom didn't even get a sniff. You've only got to look at North Liverpool. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an embarrassment. No money has been getting put into those areas. There's... there's there's an argument with, with, all, um, with all monies that get distributed, that, that there's a huge um, issue with how money's spent yeah. and how, and how um, services are, are delivered. When you decided that you wanted to get involved in uh, local politics and run for mayor, talk to me about that. Well, I didn't. I, d I didn't decide, and, and, I, and I still to this day haven't decided. Um, that I wanted to do that. I just know I have a lot to offer. Yeah. So I know I have a sharpened skill set and I understand how to create narrative, bring in investment and create jobs. That's the gig. Anyone who can do that on that trickle-down theory that you've got, that works. But I also have an understanding of how to uh, give the most vulnerable uh, a chance and an option and a way forward. And I learned that skill set in my four years of owning and operating and looking after a homeless shelter. Yeah. In fact, I had two. So that was like your training ground, really, in terms of dealing with local politics yeah. and seeing what's happening actually on the ground, on the actual yeah. bottom floor. There is no, there is no lower rung, is there, than being homeless. That's the absolute no. rock bottom for anyone in this society. Well, homeless, drug addictions, drink, believe it or not, believe it or not, there are levels within the homeless. Yeah, so there's okay. even like a, so, so a you, strata within you, them. You were cascading to, to just say, you know, that there's a bubble and, mm. and that's homeless. And I would say within that there are levels. And what I mean by that is there are homeless people who are really put together, understand what they're doing, aren't addicts, but just fell on hard times. Then there's the addicts, and then there's the aggressive addicts. Now, I have... the mentally ill as well. Well, they'll be the aggressive. Yeah. So, n more often than not. So, all the ones that I took in into Kingsway House 
weren't your normal homeless because the normal homeless had already found themselves a place. Yeah. So they were fine. So all the ones of reasonable level, reasonable behavior had found their place. They were fine. Every single one of mine was fractious. And what I mean by that is, um, let's just say you are a, an addict and let's just say it's something like heroin. So you're on a, a three hour turn, but after two hours, you're fractious. So if I'm unlucky enough to catch you within the third hour, then it's quite likely he's going to be aggressive with me. Now we may be eight stone, I'm 15 stone 10. But they're wild, aren't they? Doesn't matter. Yeah. So what happens is when they're going into Labry House or Whitechapel or whatever it may be, and they've been fractious the day before because you caught them in that, in that sinister hour, they have turned on whoever and said, I'll do whatever. They've gone right, you banned. And I go, I get that. But that means you're basically killing that person off because mm. that person is either going to have the most horrendous of nights trying to get warm in, in sinister weather or they're going to die. Now, before we opened Kingsway House, six people died in Liverpool of hypothermia. One died in December before we opened it and then none died thereafter. We saved lives in a much colder winter than the year before. So we know what we, what, what we achieved. The problem was that we were given warmth, food, shelter. We weren't given mountain health. So as soon as we opened the shelter, Joe Anderson came down and wasn't very happy. What's amazing is that you think that the council would celebrate yeah, uh, a public service like that Right, helping people, you think that they would say, Come on, this is, I know it turned out to be a threat to them, or it was perceived as a threat rather than as the public service that it was, and then that became something of a, 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 a problem for you, didn't it? At the time, Joe had just been brought in for questioning for Operation Sheridan during the same period, yeah. Okay, tell us about Operation Sheridan. Okay, <laughs> it's a big story, right? The, 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 this whole thing, this whole thing has got so many uh, tentacles, yeah. and I think they're all important. That occasionally, I think it's important for us just to give a little bit of background, right, to a specific area for our audience because they might want to know briefly okay. what Operation Sheridan is without us going into too much detail, or we'll be here forever. I, I don't want to name names because sure. it, it, it is on public record, and, yeah. I, and I can clearly name the names. Um, but I don't really want to, just, sure. just out of respect. And, and court cases. Yeah. So Operation Sheridan was about a BT contract that started its life out in Lancashire. And then the people that created that contract and the extension of that contract uh, before it reached Lancashire, so there was money put on top before it got there, I believe, I'm not 100% sure that. That same practice when those individuals came to Liverpool, brought that same practice with them. So operation- So the people who were running West Lancashire Council, the bureaucrats, were brought to Liverpool to run Liverpool Council? Yeah. In essence, yeah. In essence, and whatever the police were investigating in West Lancashire, potentially they brought that to Liverpool too? Yes. And so there was a continuing police investigation called Operation Sheridan into those same people that Joe Anderson was then implicated in? Yes. Right. So Operation Sheridan before Brexit, I believe, was a £4 million investigation over a term of four years. So the police spent £4 million on this investigation? I, 
I now believe, big investigation. <laughs> I now believe it's a six million pound investigation. Mm. What's uh, the charges of the, of the investigation? Public misconduct of public public office. Again, is that hasn't been declared, has it? I don't know what it's been declared. I certainly know it. Yeah. I don't want to get involved. Sure. In, I don't. I don't want to get involved in what I believe is going to be a court case. Yeah. I okay. believe that's going to go to fruition. Go to court case. Whatever happens, happens. So but it's gone from four million to six million. Yeah. yeah. At one at one point when Operation Loft reared its ugly head. Okay. So what's Operation Loft? So <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of police investigations I'll, going I'll, on around these councillors. <laughs> when Operation Loft came, the other operation, <laughs> Operation Sheridan, yeah, got suspended. Okay, it got suspended because this was an even worse Because Operation Loft yeah. was the largest case of fraud and corruption ever found in any form of governance ever in the UK. And that was a police investigation into Liverpool City Council. In their practices. Right, well, I'm sure we're going to come back to that in a minute. But so Operation Loft superseded... Operation Sheraton because of the serious nature of the potential crimes that are being committed and that put Operation Sheraton on the back burner, a four million pound investigation yeah, to focus on a loft. Yeah. Okay. And then just to add a there's, cherry on the top. There's another one. You've got <laughs> Operation Frenetic. So there's another operate another police investigation. This is separate. Which no one knows about. Okay, so Operation Frenetic has not gone public yet. No. Okay, so that's encrypted phones. Okay, Encro chat. Exactly. Okay, so that's a whole other conversation, but a fascinating one about extremely. It, but this police operation, which they cracked into encrypted phones, and it's ongoing now in the Supreme Court. I believe whether the police could use the things they found in the Encro chat as evidence when it should only be regarded as intelligence. I think that's the argument that's happening with, with that case. There's already been one case yeah, in which the police won. The police won. But I think that's being appealed and that's what's in the Supreme Court now because that's it's right. fundamental to um, the police police's investigation powers is that when they tap a phone or, or they collect intelligence that's traditionally under the common law, that's never been allowed to be used as evidence. It's only been allowed to be used as intelligence. So they've got to go and be there when the crime actually happens, right? And then say, this intelligence led us to this situation to have been able to see the crime happening and we've made the arrests. But with um, Frenetic, I think what they did is they said, well, no, that's the evidence there. So it's, it's anyway, the court are arguing it out at the moment. The police don't care. The police are making the arrests anyway. So we've got three police investigations. Three of them involve, or well, at least two, at least two of them involve Liverpool City Council. All three. All three involve Liverpool City Council, and at the time you were dealing with Joe Anderson yep. in the homeless shelter when mm -hmm. he was coming in, and he didn't like what you were doing because he put his nose out of joint with his personal project. He was under investigation for Operation Sheraton at that point. I don't know whether he was under investigation for Operation Sheraton. He got questioned. Okay. over Operation Sheridan. Um, his chief exec... Jed Fitzgerald. Got arrested. Yeah, and Jed Fitzgerald was the chief executive of Liverpool City Council. He was also the chief executive of Rotherham mm -hmm. City Council during the 
um, the Rotherham rape gang yeah. uh, scandal. Sure. He was also over that. So he's, he's not he's not shy when it comes to being around uh, scandals in councils, is he, Jed Fitzgerald? It seems. I I, I don't know an awful lot about um, uh, those issues in in Rotherham. Mm. Um, I do know. I think it's on the public record, though. That, you know, those crimes yeah. were committed. It took years for them to come to sure. justice. It's still going on now. Mm. It's another conversation. But anyway, that's his. That's some of his background where he came from. Then he mm. went to West Lancashire Council. Then he came to Liverpool. That's right. And then this investigation has followed him around, basically. And he brought various people with him. Yeah. Who were also part of that investigation? Did Joe bring him into yes. Liverpool City Council as the chief executive? Well, the, the the talk was, and you know, I, I don't know how true it is, but I do know it's part of the investigation, is that there were three women in front of Jed when Jed was picked on the system that they used to find out who was going to be the chief exec. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe that it was ma- manipulated for Jed to get that key post. Uh, it's not a, it's not a, uh, you know, a uh, insignificant post. I think they, uh, the salary for that post is about 250,000 a year. Might be more, might be less, I'm not sure. But I it's think it's about 230. 230 a year mm. and the perks that come with it. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so, so. And the pension. And the pension. Okay, that was going on. Yeah. During this key period in your story, which is the homeless shelter. Mm-hmm. Right, and Joe comes in to have a look. He's not happy. Take it from there. So, uh, I'm going to come back four yeah. months. So, before I fell out with Joe, I was really close with Joe. How did you become close with Joe? So, I never knew Joe, never met him before. I bought 30 James Street, uh, called Albion House at the time. And uh, I got to one of the council officers to get me a, to, to, to get me a meeting with a guy called Nick Havana. Mm-hmm. I see Nick Cavana. I said, look, Nick, I've got a great opportunity here to do 30 James Street. Who's Nick Cavana? What was he, his role? He was head of plan. Head of planner. Okay, um, so that's mentioned quite heavily later, isn't it? He, he's, he, he was Joe's number two guy. Okay. Like, his guy. His go-to, get it done He's guy. his Rottweiler. Yeah. Yeah. They've all got Rottweilers, yeah. and he, he was one. I personally like Nick. Mm. Not that that makes any relevance to what we're talking about, yeah. but I personally like him. So I've gone to Nick, and, I've, and I don't know Nick that well. I said, look, I've got this opportunity to take this uh, great two star list of building, deadly for 20 years, last year's with drug rehab centre. It doesn't make economic sense. If you can get me the planning within eight weeks, uh, I can get the funding from my investors. This is for James Street Hotel. This, this is, is the Titanic Hotel that we talked yeah. about earlier, right? So, funny story. Yeah. Okay. So... Um, uh, I'm, I'm talking to another developer in Liverpool and, and I'm quite lowly to all these guys. You know, these guys are, are, are seasoned and I'm trying to learn. You know, I'm a retailer really and I'm trying to understand the game. So not only am I learning how to do online, you know, content writing and posts and blogging and emails and all that crap, I'm also trying to understand how to, how to build out and how to fund. So one day I get a call from this guy and he says, oh, I've got four bloody Singaporeans coming over and got no stock to sell them. Can you do me a favour? Will you take them around the city? So I said, yeah, okay. So I, I took them around the city. I got on with them really, really well. Um, never seen them again. A year later, they phoned me up and they say, you know, we're coming up to Liverpool. Really enjoyed your company. We'd like to take you out for a meal. That's okay. I said, really funny, you should phone. Uh, I've got a building. So they said, great, okay. We'd love to invest in you. I said, oh, that's amazing. Thank you. So three weeks later, they come over. Luckily for me, I had 19 units and I'd sold the 19 units. So when they come over, they said, uh, uh, you know, let's go and see the unit. And I said, oh, sorry, I've, 
I've sold them. Well, we, we want to invest in you. I said, oh, I'd love you to invest in me. I've got this building. Now, Albion House, i.e. Daddy James Street, was up for sale. Uh, but the owner wouldn't let me in for some reason. So I used to bribe the caretaker with £20 to let me in. Um, and then these guys just called me Mr. Titanic. So I ended up getting some impetus from them. They said they want to invest in it in China, Singapore, Far East. Titanic is a major brand, major, major brand, yeah. number two. Everyone massive, knows it. Massive. So I thought, wow, you know, I'm Mr. Titanic now. These guys are going to go back. And they've got something like 700 investors of their own that they have this pool of investors to go to. So I, I see the, uh, the caretaker go in and see it for the last time, take them in there. They go home and then he invite me up. So they said, come over to Singapore. We've got an event. So I said to my wife, Kate, I said, being invited over to Singapore, I'll, I'll go over and have a see, what, see what happens. I'm expecting to see about three or four investors. So when I get there, I've got a little video and stuff that I've done. I, I go up, I go into the room, and they go, are you ready? And I said, for what? They said, uh, pull the curtain back. For them. <laughs> what? Was it a room full of investors? 700 investors. 700? 700. They said, you've got to do about an hour and a half. I said, I haven't got a, a, one and a half minutes, never mind an hour and a half. He said, no, 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 they've come to see Mr. Titanic. How <laughs> was a thing then? You know, how was a thing? I had a title. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I got up on, on the stage and I, and I sold me soul for an hour and a half. Uh, then the guy comes back on the stage and theatrically states. So this, sorry to interrupt, because yeah. this is another innovation of yours, as, mm. as far as I understand it, is that you would find investors for hotel rooms. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah. which was I think it's an old idea, but you made them popular again, at least in Liverpool, like that I know of. I, I think so, there were so, other people doing it, but I, I think I I I sort of because that was a key part of your success, wasn't it? Was being yeah. able to find investors to purchase a hotel room for which they'd get a return based upon the operation of the hotel. I, I think it was fair to say that any funder stroke uh, bank would never go anywhere near a great two stylist to build them, and that's why they laid forlorn yeah. for, for so long. So to take on 65 individual investors, fractionalised in a way, uh, didn't give them a voice as such to get involved, but actually allowed me to, to go and get on with the job. So I, I, go, I go up, he comes back on, he says, you know, uh, Lawrence Kenwright is uh, going to stay for another hour and a half. If you want to buy, put your hands up. So about 400 hands go up. So you do the 300, he said, thank you very much. Come back next month. We'll have something amazing to show you next month. And, and off they funnel out the door. And he says, Lawrence Kenneth's going to get up close and personal with you now. Pick your chairs up and go in circles around him. He's going to stand in the middle of the floor. So stood in the middle of the floor. All the chairs went all around me. So like they are literally, ah, it's the, you know, it's the Titanic, you know. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so another hour and a half goes by. And then this is the strangest thing I've ever seen in my life. So... Uh, at the end of that, he says, right, who wants to buy some four hundred go up? But I've only got 65 units. So he says, okay, what we're going to do, we're going to write our names on a piece of paper, we're going to put it in a hat. Ballot. I'm going to stand at the end, you're going to form an orderly, <laughs> and you're going to go up. So the first one, guy goes, Yingwa. Yingwa screams, hands in the air, <laughs> and legs it down the alleyway, <laughs> runs up, gets the piece of paper, sticks it on his chest, and stands against the wall. So you must have been, in, you must have been, you know, in shock with this. Oh, so I, so I go. <laughs> what the fuck? So I, I'm still not saying that because you know, there's no way you get money in the UK mm -hmm. for that type of thing. Two, three, four. So I turned around to the guys organising. I went, no one, but not knowing, what's going on? He said, you just took four hundred grand. 
okay. <laughs> so 65 later, it took six and a half. Wow. There or thereabouts. So, um, I who, who were these investors? Singaporeans, Malaysians, Chinese? Singaporeans. Singaporeans. All right. Singaporeans. Okay. So I'd sold 65 units. I jumped back on the plane that night. I was only there for like 12 hours or something. Flew in and flew back out again, as we had to do. And mm. um, I phoned my wife and I, Got it. I don't, but like it looks like. And anyway, so the money didn't come in as quick as what it should have. Yeah. So we went to buy it in the November. We didn't actually um, get it till the 28th of Feb. Don't forget it's a great two star list of building, not being used for 20 years, in a poor state office, not a hotel. And I had to open it for the races. I had to open it for the races. What, so what do you mean for the entry race? Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. the massive event, April, massive April. event in Liverpool for the hotel business calendar isn't it? it's one of the, yeah. the biggest events of the, of the year six weeks later yeah so great so, so, so it was open six weeks later yeah wow so the team that we we gained on that site are still with me today mm. we love each other mm. and we all we, we're like brothers mm. and we so went to war together we went to war yeah and we, we were doing 20 odd hour days mm. every day for six weeks we got two floors finished so 20 odd rooms we got the bar and the restaurant on the top floor and the events uh, in, in, the, in the main hall done. But we thought we were clever, but we weren't. So <laughs> we, never, we weren't right on the first day. Um, I mean, there's some amazing stories. Like the first day, these guys were going to eight races. Um, and one of my close friends now, Paul Egan, he's the manager at the time, really close to me. He, uh, he's, he's the manager and he's working behind the reception desk and this guy comes storming down the stairs, you know. <laughs> screaming at proper scouser screaming at him and says uh, you put me in a room there's no glass in the window so, <laughs> that's how quick you were <laughs> Paul went why there's no glass in the window so Paul went tell you what go down the road here's some money or whatever and bought, bought some drinks in the bar whatever it was a couple of hours later he gets all the yellow pages gets a glazer to come out glazer comes out and he comes in does the, the windows <laughs> does the windows comes back says to Paul pay me so Paul pays him gives him the money then Paul gets on the phone phones the guy and says hi Sarah your, your room's ready so the guy comes back in goes into his room two minutes later the guy coming down he takes him out tries to get him outside to beat him up like, what's wrong what's wrong he went the glass it, you lied to me there's still no glass in the, freezing in the room there were six rooms that didn't have glass in the windows <laughs> <laughs> so like but you know like we laugh about it now because it was yeah. so so crazy and so mad but we did get it open in time and then we opened the floor a month so we actually finished it we started it in the on the 28th of feb and we finished it in august like unbelievable times mm -hmm. girl and then about three, four years later, we bought all those investors out. They all got 150 pence in the pound. So they put 100 grand in, they got 150 grand back. Um, so, so that's interesting that because um, why, would, um, why would 65 Singaporean investors be jumping up and down to invest in Liverpool? Was Liverpool's brand at that point at a high water mark was that during joe's reign or was they just looking to invest yeah, not in the british market nothing to do with joe at all it was totally to do with lfc yeah and um beatles and a little bit of titanic so the liverpool brand had already preceded you oh before you got there uh, uh, liverpool as a brand i think is as big as manchester if not bigger when the further you go away from the uk yeah. The further you go away, Liverpool yeah, becomes I bigger. When Manchester were trying to do the Olympic bid, mm. I forget what year it was, it was 20 years ago, 
nobody knew on an international level where Manchester was, so they had to say Manchester, which is near Liverpool. That was the only point. Yeah. yeah. So Liverpool is an enormous brand that I don't think needs an awful lot of fixing. Mm. But I think we have uh, a couple of years of serious problems politically with fraud and corruption to get over. And we need our leader to understand how to get over that issue mm. and almost um, paint a different picture. But that's another. So, so okay, so that's how you met Joe, was or how you became he helped me. He helped me get planning for... So help yeah. um, James Street happen. 30 yeah. James Street happened. So, yeah. so, which is what a mayor should do. Yeah. So, so you, you were close to Joe at that period, and I, I know you were a champion of Joe Anderson totally. when he first came into office, and you thought he was, you know, brilliant for the job, and you had nothing but respect for him. Now that began that began to deteriorate, I guess, during the homeless shelter period, and did you begin to your relationship begin to sour from there? So, so I think I'm reasonably savvy. Mm-hmm. I think I'm I'm quite streetwise. I'm, I'm a businessman, and politically I'm savvy now. I wasn't then. Mm. I didn't understand the walked nature. Straight, walked right into it. Liverpool I, I politics. Didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't understand the nature of the beast. Yeah. And I thought friendships were friendships. Um, I think Joe smiled in my face mm. and then laughed behind my back. Mm. I think Joe um, used his political powers to create malfeasance. Um, albeit I'm sure he'll deny it but I do believe I have a case against the council for malfeasance uh, and against you yeah without doubt yeah yeah because 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 it wasn't long after that was it right it was that you know Liverpool's golden boy if you like started to receive some negative press in the Liverpool echo so there was starting to be some um, stories about you uh, that were critical or about what your project was and uh, the homeless shelter seemed to be the, the the fulcrum of it. It seemed to be what they were attacking mm. and um, that began a series of challenges, didn't it, for, for, for you on a personal level. Uh, and t- Tell us about that and what happened there. So the, the homeless shelter clearly saved lives. The homeless shelter gave um, a belief back to a lot of people um, Brian um, who is a very good friend of mine now you know when we got him he was eight and a half stone uh, he's now got his life he's now working he's now got his home um, and along with about another 15 or 20 just like Brian but I've stayed close to Brian Brian when I first met him said all I want to do is see my son again he's now met his son again you know these things that I think businesses in the future should be about um, social enterprises um, and, and seamlessly giving back. I've always believed in. So when we opened the shelter, I believed that I was doing exactly what mm. Joe Anderson and the like would want because I saw him as an entrepreneurial socialist just like myself. And I Do you think be... he looked at it more cynically though, being a, being a cynical politician? Well, I'll, go, I'll go through the story. Yeah. So uh, an entrepreneurial socialist, in my view, is someone who seems to give back. I believe that's what Joe stood for. That's why I align myself to Joe so much. The problem what I had is, um, before I opened the, opened the homeless shelter, uh, there was a story that went out in the Echo saying, the outsider to run for me. Um, and About you? Yeah, and it was done by Liam Thorpe. So they named you as a potential outsider challenger yeah. to Joe's yeah. office? Yeah. Joe 
with that was then he had Anne O'Bain as the heir apparent. And then Anne O'Bain's another Liverpool local politician. Yeah. Yeah. And I also believe Derek Hatton was waiting in the wings when he got back in to the Labour Party for the day. I think that was to have Len McCluskey back in with the NEC for him to be the nomination for the Labour Party, which would be a shoo-in. Because that's the, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? We talk about the mayor being a democratically elected politician in Liverpool with extraordinary power. However, the mayor is selected at the Labour Party level yeah. because whoever wins the nomination becomes the mayor yeah. because there is no opposition there is no competition it's you know it's a landslide for whoever is Labour's nomination but it's not the same with MPs well I, I probably yeah but just in terms of this one it's like that's uh, not democratic is it because you know that that selection is done privately off uh, from the public eye it's done internally between the Labour Party like Joanne Anderson who is now the the, the current mayor as soon as she was nominated, that was it. She was a shoo-in for me. Well, there's a whole story behind that as well. But yeah. the the um, the system is based on the two horse race, isn't it? But there isn't. There's only one horse in Liverpool. Well, in Liverpool <laughs> there is. But yeah. in general, I'm talking about in general now. Yeah. In general, it's a two horse race. But it could be as many horses as, you, as as enter the race in terms of anyone's allowed to stand, aren't they? But it seems in Liverpool. It's a one-party state, and democracy, you know, suffers as a result. So Liverpool vote by the badge yeah. and not about the skill set. Yeah, and that's my biggest argument. My biggest argument is, if you take that, Liverpool's got 90 councillors, which it has, and uh, I think Labour's got something like 75 of those. So they are a three councillors per ward. Isn't three councillors per ward. Yeah, and um, there is a conversation. Now that the government have now took over three areas within the council, that if there are more arrests and charges, which I believe are coming, mm. if there are, I think the ministers will take that as an opportunity to take over the city. Now, an awful lot of scousers will turn around and say, we don't want the Conservative Party uh, here because they weren't elected. And it isn't the Conservative Party as such, it's the ministers that would take over. Uh, Liverpool has a deficit of £33 million over the next three years to, to find. We've already cut all the meat off the bone. Mm -hmm. There's probably not an awful lot of meat left. Uh, if, if those ministers take over, we haven't got an issue. Mm. Um, and I do believe the government will do whatever they can to make the garden as rosy as possible. Mm. Now, I don't care who pays in order for the city to get rid of its austerity and its mm. issues. I don't care what badge it is. I don't care if it's red or it's blue. If someone's willing to spend money, just like Heseltine, just like Heseltine did in the Thatcher area, he came here with the blessing of Thatcher after after Thatcher bludgeoned us. Mm -hmm. um, but then he realised the severity of of what that did. of that battle with Hatton um, and how much it dev they, they used the people as fodder in order to cause issue. And I think... And we were punished. Uh, well, we were politically I, well, punished, weren't we? But a little bit more than that, I, I think they were quite happy with Derek Hatton mm. being sort of dominant in the city. Ooh, they gave them a bogeyman, didn't they? They gave them an, an, an opposition and an enemy to attack. Even Kinnick didn't want him. Yeah, no one so um, I, I think it was to the betterment of the Conservatives in the end. And I think when they realised how severe they treated the people of this city who had done nothing wrong... Mm. Uh, I think then they sent over the blessing, and the blessing was Heseltine. And I think he's our most beloved Conservative because what he's done in our city 
is here to see, you know. Um, Albert Dock was You'll him. You'll some criticism for that in Liverpool. I, 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 I honest to God, yeah. I honestly, I, I will stand toe-to-toe with anyone over there. Yeah, OK. Outside. Fair enough. Hezeltine is an amazing human being and what he's done for our city is the reason why we're here today. Without the Albert Dock, you wouldn't have got Liverpool 1. Without Liverpool 1, you wouldn't be where you are now. I'm not a fan of Hezeltine, but that's that's another... another I'm not talking about what else he's done. Yeah, yeah, but but, but, okay. I'm talking about what he's done for our city. Okay, I I recognise that because he came in, didn't he? He's the minister for Liverpool and he was meant to, you know, like ministers are being brought in now. He he (laughs) built the Eldonians. He he, he, he desilted the the, the Mersey. He'd done so much he done the festival gardens he done so much for the city mm. that got us onto a trajectory where we are today mm. and without him for a fact we probably wouldn't be here now because our population would have probably dwindled down to 200,000 because there'd be no way to employ people mm. we lost 100,000 people in in the Hatton era um, and we would have lost a hell of a lot more yeah. if if that funding didn't come in based on Heseltine Heseltine forced his way in to ensure that we gain that Didn't money. Didn't he buy the Albert Dock for well, a pound? <laughs> well, it wasn't him, was it? Uh, you know, he, he didn't buy it, but uh, certainly the quango that was put in place to bring that around was truly successful, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny, isn't it? You know, that's one of the, the issues with Liverpool City Council is selling off public land for um, a lower valuation than what it's actually worth, <laughs> which we will get to. Uh, and uh, Albert Dock was restored, wasn't it, from this derelict building, which is now one of the jewels in the crown of Liverpool's architectural layout, you know. Um, so... We got here because we were talking about Liam Thorpe writing an article about you, which they predicted that you could have been an independent challenger to Joe Anderson's mayoral office. Not so much independent, uh, possible... Uh, possible Labour. Labour nomination. I'm, I'm a Labour member, still a Labour member. Right, was so, then. So, so how was that received? And do you think that was the, you know, you being named as a potential threat to Joe Anderson? Len McCluskey, was he involved with, with Joe Anderson at this point? Was this something they were trying to block you from doing you know what, what what what's your take on them calling you out as saying that you're a potential because i know you've never you've never said publicly that you want to run for mayor or have you i don't know no right so um, you've never said that so so with with the, the echo the mouthpiece of the labor of the labor party in liverpool saying that about you do you think that was a catalyst, a trigger point for what came next, which I've heard you say before, something like 81 articles written about you in the Echo or negative articles, because it became like a flurry, wasn't it? It wasn't just one or two. Well, you, you, you knew it was, and you witnessed it, so it was yeah. your view. Yeah, so my view was that um, all of a sudden it turned sour for you, right? And from you were the golden boy, Mr. Liverpool, and doing all these things, and doing... This social, uh, this social kind of uh, action, this social activism as part of, at the same time, being the capitalist hotelier that you were, you would also give them back to the community. Mm. So I always kind of questioned why they would attack you. And um, they certainly did. They certainly came for you, both guns blazing. And then all of a sudden... Have you ever seen 85 stories written about anyone? Well, I, I didn't count them. But what happens is that when it becomes a flurry of, of articles, you, you just see it as like it, it was an attack on you personally, on your character and on your reputation. Now, I know from attacks made on me personally, mm. what they do is, is, is they're trying to um, make people um, lose your support, basically your popular support within the city yeah. with 
you know, the everyday scouser seeing that you're doing good and doing good for people in Liverpool, all of a sudden they don't see that anymore. They start to see things like corruption and, you know, fraud and, 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 and whatever else they were accusing you of, designed to attack your reputation so that if you decided to run at some point in the future, you had to, you know, an uphill struggle to yeah. then come out and say, well, all this is fake and all this is lies, but, you know, the damage is done. So I thought it was a political hatchet job yeah, in order to um, hamstring any political ambitions you may have had at that time. Would you say that was an accurate assessment of the situation? Go. <laughs> <laughs> you just answered for me. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let me just come back a little bit. So um, Joe Anderson ran for Walton MP. Mm -hmm. He didn't get it because Len McCluskey turned around to Corbyn and said, I will not give you a million pounds to the Labour Party if Dan Carden doesn't get that job. So Dan Carden is the MP for Anfield? Walton. Walton, right. Yeah. And he is Len McCluskey's... Very able Union. politician, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but he, but he, he's been put in place by Len McCluskey from Unite the Union. Yeah. Yeah. Joe then goes for um, the Metro Mayor. And the same Metro Mayor is a new office that's being created that covers... Greater Merseyside, not just Liverpool. Covers six areas. Covers six areas, yeah. yeah. Is it a more powerful position than the mayor of Liverpool? I, I would say no. Okay. I would say Liverpool is lead brand. And Liverpool has a, an enormous spend. And the councillors that sit in, with, in Liverpool, uh, in some ways, are more important than MPs. Um, and that's a whole other discussion. Um, but certainly councillors spend an awful lot of money or are involved in the spend of an awful lot of money, whereas MPs aren't really. Uh, MPs really just sit in the House of Parliament and, and I'm, a, I'm not um, in any way casting disbursements upon MPs, what they do. I'm sure that's a great job. They certainly get well paid for it, certainly get a great pension. Um, they, they sit there and, 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 and they govern, you know, and they come up with new laws and whatever they do. But actually, locally, they don't do a damn thing. Mm. Councillors and councils run run cities. So um, uh, Steve Rotherham is Metro Mayor, uh, and by uh, you know, I'm not saying one bit that he is in any way like Joe. Uh, as far as I know, he is very capable, does a great job. I'd like to see him lead more. Mm. I'd like to have seen him come into the fray and take control. Um, but what actually happened was um, when Joe stood down uh, or was forced to stand down, uh, Joanne Anderson, strange name, uh, ended up taking over. But she is... She was elected, wasn't she? So, well, so let, let's get to that point okay. again. Um, Steve Rotherham's extremely powerful within the Labour Party. Yeah. He was Corbyn's bad carrier before, but he's also politically savvy and he understands how to play the game. Joanne Anderson works very closely with him. Mm -hmm. And I would say it was Steve Rotherham that led her by the hand to that job. Because she's almost like silent. Isn't she compared to Joe Anderson, who was, you know, very vocal. He was, you know, he was all well, over the press. It's don't a really big move much. for her, you know. It's a, yeah. it's a big move. And, 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 and by the way, I don't think Joanne, Joanne Anderson isn't like Joe Anderson either. Mm -hmm. But I think Joanne Anderson came to the fray saying that she was going to disband the, the, office. the, 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 the mayor position. Uh, that's gone very quiet, probably because Steve Rotherham is now all powerful. Mm. Probably, and I'm fine. And you know, that's the way that goes. That's fine. Don't forget, Manchester hasn't got that. Mm. Andy Burnham is the mayor, 
Um, and he has Lise. He's a he, he is the equivalent of. And he, he has Lise, who is the leader. Yeah. Now, Lise, as the leader, is not as powerful of what... You know, Joe Anderson was extremely powerful as the mayor. More powerful than any other mayor, in my view, because he'd been in power for that long. He didn't have to walk down the more accustomed corridors of power. He could create and did create his own corridors of power. Those corridors of power is ultimately what's going to get him into trouble. Mm. The problem what the regime has now is how does it pull itself away when the mechanism that supported Joe is still in place? Mm. And that's a problem for Keir Starmer because the elections are going to be next May 23. What election for Liverpool mayoral office? So, so what normally happens is um, uh, when you get elections in Liverpool, it's every year with one year out. So one third of all councillors go up for election every year. So we're in a constant election cycle, aren't we, in Liverpool? Yeah, not now. Yeah. So when, when the government jumped in and they took over, th took over three departments, those three departments, I think, will end up being the entire department, you know, the, whole, the whole council, the whole gig, I think, in the end. And I'm embracing that. I think that's an amazing thing for us. Mm. The, the problem that the councillors have um, is that they were part of that mechanism. And when they go for election all together at once in 23, if the noise of fraud and corruption is that loud, and I do think it will be, I think it's far greater than anyone has any understanding of. Well, let's, let's focus on that a little bit then. Because but, I think but sorry, but when that happens, I think Labour Party has a very uh, big disadvantage if another party makes a play. So you personally faced persecution and harassment in the media. Did the police get involved at any point? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, so you, you had the full court press, right, from um, potentially from the Office of Mayor orchestrating events in order to crush a realistic threat to, to his position in Liverpool. It's one way of looking at it. Right. Um, now... What that kind of leads to is the levels of fraud and corruption in Liverpool City Council. Um, you know, we we can see signs of it in what they did to you. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what do you? How do you respond to? First of all, let's deal with you, right? How do you respond to some of the allegations and criticisms that have been made against you? in relation to you know investors or your business but model what's your what's your position on that before we get to that yeah i think i need to finish off um what happened with joe go on so joe went for the metro mayor and obviously failed there yeah he had promised Anne O'Byrne that she was going to be the next mayor mm -hmm. um, and these are all facts by the way that not for contention it's a fact uh, and then he started speaking to me now, he started speaking to me because if i done anything online, I would get huge traction online, and he knew it. So I went to his house four times in four weeks, Gross. every Tuesday, to his own home. Um, and I would go there quite a bit. And I went there as a friend, but this time I was going there as uh, the possible um, next of kin to his throne, uh, talking about what are the options. The succession. Yeah, what are the options to that? 
And I, rightly or wrongly, turned around to him one day and I said, I will uh, not look over my shoulder. It's not for me to look backwards, I want to look forwards. So if I do do this, if I do, um, I think I'm perfectly placed because I understand about narrative. I am very good at creating narrative. I'm very good at bringing in investment. And I'm very good at creating jobs. And I see that as the ambinector to all things. I think if you do that, everything cascades down. Uh, but I also understand the bottom of the, of the pyramid. I understand about the importance of looking after our most vulnerable, more than anyone else, because I lived with them for so long. Mm -hmm. Joe was very down at the time. Then Derek Hatton got back in the Labour Party for the day. One day. One day. I'm sure Keir Starmer kicked him back into touch. It was not he accused of anti-Semitism or something like oh, that, and it was gone. And that's how he got, it. He got pulled yeah. out. Um, so Len what, what, why, why did that happen? Why was he? Why, why did he rejoin the Labour Party? I'll tell you now. Okay. So Len McCluskey um, <laughs> was backing him. Yeah. Was close, backing Hatton. Close mates. Close. Wow. All, all that Flanagan thing and all them—they're all close. Yeah. Um, McCluskey would go to uh, their box at Liverpool every home game. So McCluskey was backing Hatton. Uh, Hatton can only get that position if he's in the Labour Party. I think Keir Starmer, don't have no proof of that, threw him out. I think Derek Hatton then wanted to be the puppet master. So Derek Hatton went and picked up Joe's slopey shoulders and propped him up against the wall and said, we're going to back you. Now, Len McCluskey put Dan Carden in mm. to beat Joe. Len McCluskey was no fan of Joe's. But the, the, the silver tongue of Derek mm. won Len round. So Len and Derek were then backing him up. Because weren't they originally not enemies, Len and Derek Hatton and Joe? They, they, they didn't really respect each other at the beginning, did they? they didn't jo, jo, Joe didn't like Derek, Derek didn't like Joe, mm. but Len and, and Derek Hatton Derek is a legendary figure in Liverpool politics for anyone that doesn't know. You know, in the 1980s, he was famous for shouting out publicly against Thatcher and he led um, the Trotskyite militant um, faction of the Labour Party and ultimately he was kicked out of the Labour Party by Neil Kinnock and yep. um, the Thatcher regime used that as an excuse to punish Liverpool for what happened with Hatton. And then Hatton disappeared from politics, became a businessman, and has re-emerged amongst this entire Joe Anderson scandal. And he has a part to play in this story, which I think hasn't been fully revealed yet. I think that's to come in the future, maybe. Well, you've got to remember that Derek is someone that has been in front of a jury before and walked. Mm. Derek is a very intelligent... Very charismatic, you know, he's, he's been around for a long time, he knows all the players, he knows all the... Well, he's blessed with two skills, isn't he? Yeah. He's very charismatic and he's extremely clever. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't think... I don't think he'll get into any trouble now. Mm. But I do think Joe will. Mm -hmm. I don't think Joe's at the same level as Derek. So, so De Derek comes into the story, Derek Hatton comes into the story, props Joe up because Joe's feeling down in the dumps, mm -hmm. yeah, and then taking it from there. So, Len is a Rasputin figure within the Labour Party, in my view. Len, to have Len's backing means, at that time, don't forget, with Corbyn. So, Len McCuskey is, was the chairman of Unite the Union, the biggest... Chief exec, probably. Chief exec, yeah. Chief exec, Unite Union. which is the biggest was. union... Not now. In the country with three yeah. million members. Yeah. And was the main funder to the Labour Party. 
Yeah. So that Rasputin figure is very apt because he, he controlled a lot of what the Labour Party's done. And, you know, he was also very strong in the Labour Party because of Corbyn. So when um, Len wanted something to happen, it happened. He was the puppet master to Corbyn, mm-hmm. in effect. So when he came and rallied behind Joe, Joe's sloppy shoulders almost, you know, shot out. And then the thought of me becoming the mayor one day then got through into pasture. Mm-hmm. A couple of days later, Derek Hatton phoned me and said, hey, can I meet you? He walked around my office. I probably had 20 people in the social online team. I had 100 people in the head office. Um, I had a £250 million business at the time. And I think he realised just how strong I was. Because I had more on my social team than what the Labour Party did. And he said that. Two days later... And that potentially would win or lose an election. Of course. Having a very strong social media team because... You know, that's where elections are now won and lost. Mm. And and they're still lethal, aren't they? Yeah. They don't really understand that. Yeah. And then Len McCluskey phoned me and said, we're in London next. I said, I'll oh, be three days or whatever. So I went down to see Len. I was with him for an hour and a half. Both Len and Derek both turned around to me and said, are you going to run? And I said to both of them, I have no intention of running if Joe's running. I had loyalty to Joe. They said, no, we don't think you're going to run uh, for the Labour ticket because you're not going to get it. Mm. They were quite blunt over that. And I said, no, no, I'm not going to get it. We're talking about you running as an independent. Now, Joe had said... So they to me, asked you outright if you yeah. were going to run. But Joe had sat with me a few times and said, you could beat me as an independent. Mm. And at the time, I would have beat him. Mm. It's only 52,000 votes. And I had a huge traction at the time. Was this before or after the persecution in the press? Well, so next phase is, <laughs> I said no, no, and no. Yeah. And then later on, I've opened the homeless shelter. That is seen as a political play, mm-hmm. which it would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a huge success, massive success. If I've done a, a post on social media, I get thousands and thousands of shares, mm-hmm. not reach shares. If they done something on social media, they get like no three asked. or four. Yeah. No one's bothered. So th- th- there was a rich vein that I, that I, that I hit there that they were very, very, very scared of. So but then you were a real threat. Oh, I was a big threat. And, and they wanted to maintain control of the mayor's office in Liverpool because outside of London, I think it was one of the most powerful political offices that existed because of the nature of how they set up, you know, the mayor of Liverpool. Well, Joe was voted in the top 10 most influential people in the UK. There you go. So, yeah. uh, extremely, extremely powerful. And, and, I, and I know that because I was bludgeoned on his sword. So I understood. Mm. I, I'm starting to understand just how powerful he was. So when he turned round to the Echo, I believe, to come after me, because the Echo gained 1.4 million, or did gain, not now, did gain 1.4 million a year um, in advertising revenue from the council. That was really a big stick for Joe to make sure that the stories didn't resonate about him. Um, and just to add a little bit more meat on the bone to what I'm stating there, um, the editor- uh, Of the Echo. Of the Echo on his leave and do, invited Joe as the main speaker who spoke of the editor in very high regard. And then Joe gave him a job at the ACC on 170 grand a year. So not only were the, the Echo getting 100 and the golden one parachute. Point, <laughs> one point four, well, golden parachute from a, a non-related yeah, body. Yeah. Um, clearly that was a thank you for looking after his um, online presence. We all know that um, newspapers are yesterday's chip paper, 
but they are today's Google page. Mm-hmm. And so when I had 85 uh, negative stories written on me, and that started with uh, the homeless shelters. And the homeless shelter, if you can imagine, I'm, I'm a guy who's very much online, and my Google page is sacrosanct. It, it's so important to me. And if uh, someone sees Signature Living or Shankly or whatever it may be, the next thing they're going to look for, if they're looking to invest, is Lodge Kenwright. Yeah. Um, every single story was lambasted with every single brand of mine. and It's the modus operandi of the people who've attacked you is to go after your character and your reputation. Sure, but, but just to get into the detail of, yeah. if Joe Anderson had a story about him and he has had some negative stories now, clearly because he's been arrested, you'll see there'll always be four links in every Echo story. Mm. And, and, and the links are the ones that are in red, which means if you want to caveat off into a different story, that's related normally. So with Joe's, it was government-led but not related to him. With mine, mine were all related to other stories, which meant that it created a, a labyrinth mm. of um, stories that you couldn't navigate away from if you followed those connections. Whereas with Joe's ones, you could navigate away with the next cliff. Yeah. With mine, it would go to a story, within a story, within a story, within a story. So now... Just so, 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 so it's like, you know, instead of being purveyors of truth, uh, which is what the, an independent free press should be. It becomes a weapon in the hands of politicians. But we it? all know that, don't we? Yeah, but it's, yeah, it needs yeah, to be stated. Yeah. 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 So um, if, you, if you wanted to invest in one of my apartments or rooms, you would go online, you'd check out Signature, you'd check, check out Shankly, you'd check out Lawrence Kenwright, and then you'd see, you know, some days in the Echo, I had three negative stories on three, you know, like page three, page eight and page 12, mm. you know, all different stories all relating to me, but all interlinked. Mm. So you would go on there and, and the, I always remember the first story that went out was, uh, we were coming to the end of our of, of operating our winter homeless shelter. And we've been seeing Frank Hunt and Christine Banks and Joanne Kushner every week to, um, to decant out of the shelter in, in a harmonious manner, in line with the council. And there was no issue whatsoever. And on this one day, we were supposed to uh, come out of one of the rooms that we had, because we'd expanded so much, because there were so many homeless people. Um, and, and those homeless people always leave their unwanted fodder. So we had to bag it up and box it up. The council were due to pick it up. They didn't pick it up for 36 hours. And then um, when they did come 36 hours later, the homeless people had gone into the boxes and, and strewn all the contents all over the car park. An open car park in an area that's been a drug area for 20 years. Mm. Now, on, on that car park, we'd had what we called the sharp room. Now, I asked the chief constable to come down and see it. He viewed it. He said, OK, it's not official, but I understand it's there and I know why you're doing it. The reason why I'd done it is I wouldn't let them take drugs in the room. Mm. Not my fault they take drugs, by the way. Didn't want to take drugs in the room. But they also didn't want to take drugs in doorways where they would just throw the unwanted needle on the floor and some child would pick it up. So we created a portaloo mm. and called it a shout room where they get rid of needles properly. Three o'clock in the morning, the council, sorry, the council, sorry, the night's team went into the shaft room, took pictures not only of the needles in the shaft room, again, not my fault, nothing to do with me. Mm. They also took pictures of in the gutters up and down the street. Unprecedented for the council to send the pictures to the to the echo within two hours. So it's gone through no council process. It hasn't gone to council officers. It hasn't gone to anyone. It's gone from the council officers to Nick Small. Mm. Nick Small has sent those pictures onto um, the echo. By that day, three o'clock, 
can write drugs on the front page. Yeah, so the can write drugs is the headline. You were chasing, wasn't it? You know, and that's that's for what, someone yeah. that has never drank a lager or a wine in his life. Yeah. To put that on the front was utterly devastating. Yeah. But stopped my cash flow immediately. Wow. And then they done it again. Yeah. Do you know and what to do? Then they done it again. So <laughs> yeah. I had three stories in three weeks. I ended up with about twenty-four negative stories mm. on the homeless shelter. But during that time, Stoke Council came with the the leader of the council, MPs, um, and all various people, and a guy called Lou McCarty, you mm. might know, played for Man United. Um, and they copied our next shelter, which is Cotton Street. And now in Stoke, if you go to Stoke, Lou McCarty Shelter is modelled on ours. So isn't it strange that one council sees that as hope and glory mm. and the other council sees it as... Well, it was clearly a political hatchet job, wasn't it? So at the same time, Labry House had a complaint. I put an FOI in. How many complaints were given on Labry House at the same time of us not gaining one? Mm. Why was the 20-odd stories on us... Labry House's Joe Anderson's yeah, uh, yeah. operation. Why were the 20-odd stories on us in the Echo when we never had one single complaint? when Labry House had multiple complaints, many, many complaints, not one single entry into the Echo, mm. and there is the proof of the collusion between the Echo and the council in order to bring me down. Okay, so, so, you know, I think that's quite clear for observers of what was going on there. Again, that's proved later, but before we move into that, so what is, like we, we touched on it before, what is your response to some of the criticism that you faced, some of the allegations about investors and stuff like that, how would you answer that? So at the time of all this happening, we, were, we, we had 22 building sites. Yeah. We had 250 million pounds worth of development on our books. Um, our money stopped overnight. So we got squeezed. Okay, so, so as a result of this bad press, it affected your cash flow as a business, mm. yeah, and your ability to operate. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So So they were trying to take you out. Yeah. Yeah. So we decided to sell Shankly and James Street. As a result of this? As a result of that. Okay. Um I owed twenty two million on the two and I sold them I had them sale agreed for forty eight. Mm-hmm. So we were well ahead. Uh, it would have been great. And that would have settled that well the issue in, in that twenty two, that's the twenty two investors' money. Yeah. That would have been theirs. So what actually happened was we told our investors that they were getting their money back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Brexit happened, and the, and the people who were buying it couldn't get their money in. Mm. So now I've got a lot of frustrated investors that were due to get paid. And they didn't get paid because they didn't sell. So the money's locked in the building. I haven't took it out. It's still here, it's still here today. So when we went into COVID, um, we had a lot of frustrated investors who were wrong because I hadn't took the money out who was stating, where's our money? It's still in the bricks and mortar. You've only got an argument to have sold and I've kept it. Mm. I haven't sold it, it's still there. Because didn't they buy the bricks and mortar so on we, a lease or something? Yeah, we had 125 individual investors yeah. who all bought what we call a key. And the key is a room, a bedroom. And let's just say on average, they spent £100,000 per key. Um, we now are in administration to save ourselves against those investors who were trying to come after us while we were closed. Because that was quite a big splash in the press, wasn't it, as well, when, yeah. when it looked like this was going to go down, the yeah. Shankly. Yeah, they didn't pull any punches there either. They? Well, they, they actually used the word collapsed. Yeah. And yet, Dixie Dean never went. 
Yeah. Um, Alma Cuba never went. Because that's what I thought as an outside observer. Raynal Hall never it's went. It's over for Ken, right? Yeah. So Dixie Dean didn't go. Yeah. Alma Cuba didn't go. Um, Raynal Hall didn't go. Kingsway House didn't go. Uh, Preston didn't go. And Manchester didn't go. There were a whole cluster of sites that didn't go. Now, when the Trafford Centre went into administration like we did, the shops didn't go into administration. Their operation carried on. Our operations didn't go into administration either. So it was the ownership so, of the buildings. So when they said collapsed, yeah. it was... Um, inaccurate. Totally inaccurate. And that, again, caused me... Of course. Huge issues. Yeah. Um, and so we had, to, we had no choice in the end but to go into administration. And on the building side of it? On the building side only. Yeah. Not on the operational side. So where do you stand right now with your investors? Have you so, um, mediated the situation? So look, there's plenty of um, issues there for me to go and deal with. And the first one I'm dealing with is the Shankly. Shankly's in administration. I have stayed here, worked round the clock many, many days, changed the business plan, changed how it operates in order to meet um, a customer base that doesn't support or doesn't have any tourism. So we changed when we opened on the 4th of July um, not this year, not, not, not the year before. Mm -hmm. um, we opened with the view of um, an event with a bed. So we put events on the roof um, and we sort of fell foul of COVID there as well because we found that um, health and safety and the licensing department worked at two different rule books. And when we opened the roof, which we sit on now, um, we can get 1,000 people on the roof and we only put 300 people on the roof, obviously because of regulations or whatever and the first day we opened we had um, two black marais outside police on horseback um and police running through the building finally yeah. come for ken right i think i think that was a sliding <laughs> doors moment that because if i had gone then the 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 echo would have put ken right put lives at risk yeah and the administrators would have run a mile from me and 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 threw me out so that's interesting so that you think that was a critical a critical moment in this story then factually yeah so um someone looked down on me that day yeah and, and I, I was clever enough to ensure that I had someone who could speak apples with apples with them. So I had my own health and safety executive. So they could talk 24 to 24-7. Yeah. So when they come in and started to try and blindside us, he would say, no, no, it, it is, is the music. Well, at the time, I think we could have six on the table, but you were, you were allowed to dance in the same spot. <laughs> but you weren't allowed to dance together. Yeah, because COVID weren't. travels at a certain yeah. height. If you well, sit down, you're safe. If you stand up, you better be careful. Yeah, and you, and you weren't allowed to sing. Mm. So uh, <laughs> when they walked in, I think a girl was dancing where their seat was on her own, but just throwing her hands in the air. And, and yet there's been no official outbreak mm. of COVID outdoors mm. ever. Okay, but that's with hindsight. Mm. So that was a pivotal moment for me that they came to close me down still under the influence of Joe. Mm. So Joe was still in position then? He was still in position. Right, okay. Um, I was lucky that I worked really well with the administrators mm -hmm. and they allowed me to continue to run the site as I wished to and they gave me a lot of freedom. Um, this building's now getting sold to a company I'm working with 
And I believe, although not confirmed, I believe the investors will get more than what they invested in. So you're confident that the people who think that the, the investors who invested in you... In here. In, in this building, where you face some criticism, you're confident that you'll be able to resolve them issues for them and they'll be happy about the situation to the best of your abilities. Okay, I'm just going to enlarge upon that. Normally when it's in administration, mm. administration is the same as Chapter 11 in America. Mm -hmm. But in the UK, it's a fraudulent system. It doesn't work how it's supposed to work. It ends up being a receivership. That's how it sort of works. And not many people come out of administration. In, in America, Chapter 11, a lot of people come out of that form of administration there. So not only did I have 96% of my investors vote for me, mm -hmm. I also... Um, so they voted for you to remain the operator of this business. Yes. When they could have got rid of you if they wanted to. Yes. Yeah. So well, I, I invited the investors in. The proof of the pudding's in the eating, isn't it? Then I, I invited the investors in to become my boss, to show that I hadn't taken any money out, and I am willing to grind out a result, and that's exactly what I've done. So in Shankly, um, uh, I had a lot of scope to to rechange, and I think. The skill of the um, uh, the administrator was to see that skill and let me run with it. The the upside of that is that the uh, fund that's coming in, hopefully in the next couple of months, and normally an administration receives it with liquidation, does never get more than 10p in a pound return for the investors. I think mine's going to be over 100 pence in a pound. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that has ever happened before in the UK. And if it has, please someone tell me, because I don't know of it, and I've searched Okay. So that is only on Shankly. I've got a number of other sites to go and work through. Mm -hmm. But when I start with that, I'm cleaning up my name then. Mm -hmm. I am the only reason why this is getting that level. Because my style of hotels are inoperable by other operators. Because I'm... Floor innovation, isn't Well, it? I'm dancing yeah. to a different tune. Mm -hmm. And they don't understand that tune. And most hotel operators are very um, pre-DNA'd into a Hilton-style um, uniformed offer. Mine is anything but. I'm Wabi Sabi, aren't I? I'm trying to be something completely different. Otherwise, I don't get seen. If I don't get seen, I fall into their forest. If I fall into their forest, then I'm going to fall into a battle with them that I cannot win because they've got more money, more funds, bigger size, whatever. I have to create my own garden. And I think I have created my own garden. Mm -hmm. I think we are the main operator of anything above two. We are the experts. We are also the Instagram below hotel, mm -hmm. and I don't think people want to go and boast about Travelodge. And I think those. So people, you're the best person to turn this around. I've done it. That, by the way, it's under exclusivity mm. at the moment to be purchased by a fund now, mm. and I am the reason for that fact. And without me, the fund have said they wouldn't have bought it. So I'm going with the fund. Mm. And I'll be partnership. I'll be in partnership with the fund, and I have made sure that everyone gets their money back. Good. And more. Good. Good. And that's a fact. Okay. Good. That, I appreciate you telling me that. That's a, um, you know honest of you. So let's move. Uh, on. Sorry. Let me just let, let me run that. Say, so, keep going. <laughs> so what, what, what normally happens is um, uh, in this world of funding, uh, developer gets blamed for everything. He runs as far away as he can and get blamed for everything. And look, I'm sure they've done wrong, but also there's an awful lot of funds out there that fund to fail. Mm -hmm. To make more money from the failure than they do some success. And, and that is a term that's known 
in in my sector mm -hmm. that other people probably don't even know about. Fund to fail. Fund to fail is when let, let's just say I've got a ten million pound site end value. Yeah. And let's just say to buy it I need three and to develop that house I need five. So on the three I have to put a million, bank put in two, I put in one. On the five I put one and a half in, they put in three and a half. So in total I put in two and a half. Two and a half million. When it comes to a certain point, if I've defaulted and you know what better time to default than during the pandemic? And you could claim force majeure, but it, it can be very difficult to get over the line, especially now. So they can come in and go, he's only got about two million more to spend. We can gain his two and a half million yeah. and his profit. Now that factually does happen. So that, that- And who, who is the instigators of that, the bank? Of course. Yeah. What's happened is the standardized banks with their very low interest have left the industry, mm -hmm. left because they're not the experts at um, fund to fail. Wow. So they give the funding at their one, one and a half, whatever, 2%, 3%, whatever it is, to those funds. Those funds then, because they don't want to be tarnished, but they're happy with the one or two or 3%, but they print the money themselves anyway. And then that money then goes out, mm. and then that goes out at 10, 12% default interest. So I've just lost 11 million pounds just in default interest. I don't see that money as mine. I see that as my investors' money. I'm here fighting for my investors. I'm not here fighting for myself. Whatever I've lost, I've lost. I lost 120 million pounds. I'm not complaining. I don't care about money. I'm here only for my investors. And I think the first brick in my wall of stability will be when I paid back my Shankly investors. And I will use that as a pillar of strength and I will go from, from that point on to then take on the other sites that I've got to do. And so we're already, I won't mention the other sites, but we're already in negotiation to do the other sites. But I don't think people can ask for more than that. If, if you, you know, you're being honest and you're, you're telling us that as it is, mm -hmm. you know, and if, if you're not being honest, it'll come back to haunt you, won't it? So I think, I think it's uh, important to hear it from the horse's mouth. And mm -hmm. I hope any investors listening, will, you know, take confidence from it because I think it's an important point, especially because, you know, of your position in the city and what's happening next, mm -hmm. which I think if we move on to, um, fraud and corruption in Liverpool, which this story so far leads us up to. Um, and Joe Anderson, unfortunately for Joe Anderson, is at the centre of this entire narrative and scandal that has engulfed the city. Yep. Now, I remember um, during COVID when we were out protesting on the street Mm -hmm. We were protesting the loss of our fundamental human rights, which was the right to protest, the right to assembly, and no one has that power to take that away from us. And we were out protesting the loss of those fundamental rights. The Echo decided to um, try and um, slander us and defame us and call us all the names, but most importantly, Joe Anderson came out and said we were an embarrassment to the city. Mm. I took great offence to that. Mm. Right? And at the time during the protest, there was one particular, there was one particular little area where we went round um, the town hall and people were chanting, "Joe must go, Joe must go, Joe must go." And then it was like this, uh, this kind of like um, divine intervention. A week later, it was announced that Joe Anderson, the mayor of Liverpool had been arrested by the police. 
for I think it was witness intimidation and we cheered as a group of people who were protesting the loss of our rights and, and having our having our leader condemning us instead of standing up for what we were doing because we weren't hurting anyone we were just expressing what we believed to be true so it was it was like a strange divine intervention that while he was calling us an embarrassment to the city he has now brought this city into disrepute or the reputation that we've worked so hard to rebuild over the last 20 years is now a threat thanks to um, what's been going on in Liverpool City Council. Now, people could say we're speculating here or, you know, there's a bit of sour grapes going on from maybe either side. However, you put me on to something called the Max Caller Report. Just before you get into that, yeah. do you not think it's very, very strange that freedom of speech is normally... A left-wing policy. But it's meant to be social justice, isn't it? <laughs> and yet, it seems to be the left-wing side of politics that's trying to close it down. And weirdly enough, it's the right-wing in politics that are standing up for free speech. It's it's all over the place. I don't even know what the labels mean anymore. Do you not think that is an anomaly, which you never would have thought you found? I, I totally. And I, I grew up, you know, in a very left-wing family. Um, Labour. You know, our, our entire lives. My my grandmother was a Labour councillor for thirty years. She became mayor of Knowsley, yeah, yeah. right? And you know, we were f- brought up fighting for our human rights sure. from the oppression that we felt yeah. from the Tories and stuff like that. And but freedom of speech, you know, the, it's the miners, dockers, freedom of speech, yeah. left wing policy, and yet that's the first right. Left wing is closing you down. Who's closing us down? Trudeau. Yeah, yeah but uh, uh, what are they afraid of? Why are they afraid of what we've got to say? What is it that we've got to say that needs to be suppressed? Why, why are words so dangerous that they need to remove our fundamental rights and freedoms because they don't want to hear the words? Do you not think it's very strange the way the Democrats are almost fighting for big business? Mm. Pharma, mm. online, social media, Facebook. There's, there's uh, Zuckerberg spending 417 on Biden's campaign. Mm. You know, th- th- there is a definite shift it's, a, it's, like, it's like a global communism, though, isn't it? It's like, you know, it, it's the corporations. Some people call it fascism. They call the the marriage of corporate power and government, you know, fascism. I think mm. I think it's probably uh, an inaccurate description. I think, you know, international communism is probably more to worry about because, you know, China, the second biggest economy in the world, is literally a communist country. Uh, you know, it's a hybrid. It's a hybrid, yeah, but but they still recognise... entrepreneurial socialism. Uh, well, <laughs> maybe, right? They, but the, the thing is, Xi Jinping will come out and say that, you know, the, the ideological founders of China's Chinese communism is Marx and Lenin, right? So, yeah. Another, that's another argument. But yeah, it is interesting how the left are the ones who are now suppressing free speech. Why are they trying to fr- suppress free speech? Who were the bastions of free speech through yeah. the minor strikes, through the dockers. And that's what the echo, you know, acts as the um, mouthpiece of this tyrannical power. And people who speak out or want to be heard are slandered, are libeled, are defamed in order to silence them. Or if it won't silence them, to scare off or ward off people from listening to them mm-hmm. because their ideas are dangerous, right? Um, anyway. So, so, no, yeah. but, but it's important because it, it's, it's probably, you know, ties into the Max Caller report because that's what comes from the pages is the fear and intimidation that was run in Liverpool City Council to silence people from speaking out. However, so the Max Caller report, which you 
sent to me and I didn't even know existed. There's an article of it in the Echo written by Liam Thorpe, funnily enough. Yep. And it's critical, you know, but it's balanced. And, you know, like he says in the article, it's not a sexy document. It's a, a government document telling you how the inner workings of local government and what's going on in Liverpool. And this document is pretty damning. It condemns Liverpool City Council, um, how they've been getting run over the last 10 years or more, I'm not sure. Joe Anderson's leadership of fear and intimidation. These are these are words that are in the report. It's not me just making this up. And I was quite, you know, taken aback. Taken aback, but a little bit like disappointed and deflated at the language used by the Max Call report about Liverpool and saying that Liverpool worked hard to shed this idea of being a basket case from the 80s with the Derek Hatton era. And now there's a danger that we could fall back into that description of being a basket case due to the levels of incompetence as well as corruption in the council because I don't think it was just all corruption if you read the Max Caller report it's like they just don't know what they're doing they don't have the, the skill sets like you talk about they don't particularly want to bring in the skill sets and then there was lots of fraud and backhanders and developers buying land for nothing and it was just a big big mess and i don't blame the developers and i don't blame even some of the crooks right is that it's the politicians that make the decisions it's the politicians that allow this level of corruption to happen in liverpool and i think it's an important um pivotal moment in liverpool's modern history because in the report itself it recommends that government inspectors government commissioners come in and keep an eye on Liverpool City Council to make sure that this corruption that's happening in the core of Liverpool City Council comes to an end. Tell me what your findings are, what your knowledge is and insight into this Max Call report and how damaging you think it is. So the, the Max Call report is tip of the iceberg. Uh, these guys have come in and have... He's been sent in by the government, Max Call, that has to do an inspection on Liverpool City Council. And what he found was damning. Uh, and he found 65 anomalies of huge proportion. Each one of them is um, sites that would cascade to millions. So it's, it's an awful lot of money. They estimate 100 million, I estimate way more than 200. Uh, I think I have a better understanding than they do. I understand the street. I'm from the street. I understand business. Mm. They don't truly. And I understand politics because I had a baptism of fire with yeah. politics. So I had to learn quick and I'm a quick learner. If you look at Joe Anderson and how he gained power, he was placed in power by people from that arena, the darkened arena. And I honestly believe he was bullied by those people when they needed to gain funds. So he was operating out of a position of fear? A million percent. Mm. So I don't overly blame Joe, I just think he didn't have a backbone. But the thing is with Joe, he's such an unlikely candidate for a position that powerful. He does look good, he's not particularly charismatic. You know, um, what, were, what was his skill set that enabled him to hold on to power for so long in Liverpool 
and be so influential? Very simple. He was a bully. Yeah. So he, he was that bull in the China shop. Mm. He was very aggressive, and he, he was he had a, a, a very good and political antenna. How to take someone out? I'm a great example of that, mm. uh, and I think I'm quite savvy. Um, so he certainly pulled the rug from underneath me, f- from a view totally of friendship. Ruthless. Beyond my recognition of what ruthless is, mm. so there's a back door there that I don't understand why he would do it, uh, and and I, I do understand it now. I'm not naive anymore. But with Joe Anderson, and I said it before, he created or dominated the corridors of power within the Cunard and then created labyrinths off, which were stronger corridors of power that had um, that were aligned to gangsterism, um, that were aligned to fraud and corruption. Uh, and these acts were seamless in how they were put together. When he put in his corridors of power, the corridors of power were friendships aligned, not skill set provoked. So it was never about someone's skill set. It was about the friendship and the fact that if he wanted plan to go through, yes, did he manipulate behind the scenes? Of course he did. But when you look at it on a piece of paper, it's gone through council process. So there's nothing illegal gone on. So he was able to... He was able to exert his influence over council process and policy of course. in order to create a paper trail that appeared to be of course. correct and proper. Of course. So, I'll give you an example. Um, Liverpool has 15,000 properties that we own as a council. We also have uh, an enormous amount of land that we can turn into properties very easily. Let's just say you come to me, I'm Joe Anderson, your developer, you come to me and say, Robin Sigur this amazing idea, I want to turn this piece of land into 200 apartments. No problem, I'll sort that for you, because I'm connected to mm. the planning departments and I can get it all sorted. Nick Cavanagh's very close to me, he's head of the plan. So the council officers will sign it off and then the politicians will then sign it off because the council officers have deemed it to be correct. So he has both ends already sewn off, officers are his and councillors are his. And so that land gets gifted away for naught uh, under the proviso that in some period of time in the future that that land will give 200 lots of uh, rates in order for the council to pay wages. Oh, on paper, but, that sounds like a good thing, though, doesn't okay. it? Yeah. Eight weeks later, it then gains planning for 200 apartments. Don't forget, we own the land and we own the planning process. Why, why did we give, and the city centre, each... If it's Lime Street, it's worth £25,000 per planning permission per unit. If it's somewhere on the outskirts, maybe Taiban or whatever, slightly outside the city, it might be 20. So 200 apartments is worth £5 million. So that piece of wasteland that you think is wasteland is never wasteland. Mm. It's always worth something. There's no land in this world that's worth nothing. And on that basis, why have we given away so much land? But in the, in the couple act... It, couple it with the planning. Yeah. Couple it with the planning, that wasteless piece of land we're planning that we're in control of is worth five million pounds. Why, when you come to me and you ask me, can you have that land? Don't I say to you, great, no problem. I'll give you your plan of mission and I'll tidy it all up, make it all nice. It's going to be worth five million pounds. I'm not going to charge you five million pounds. I'm going to charge you 3.75. Mm-hmm. 
to give you the incentive to take it on and yeah. all the benefits that it's going to provide for the I'll local community. I'll give you community. 75% of value, known for well, that's the amber nectar for you to go and get funding. Yeah. So now you haven't got to put nothing in the middle. We get 3.75. You get your opportunity to develop. So and I'll just give deal? you a leg start. Fantastic. We don't do that. We go, here's the land for nothing. Have it. We know what it's going to be because that's, we need the reason as to why we're giving it away. So in the documents that go to the council for it to be deemed okay, it states in that it's going to be 200 pounds. So we know it beforehand. Yeah. And we still give it away for naught. We've done that in measurable times. So, so th- th- there's two ways to look at this, isn't there? Either it was given away to friends, um, colleagues, uh, gangsters, uh, business people in order to develop something that wouldn't be developed normally and those jobs are then brought into Liverpool and council tax are paid so or it was given away to receive a backhander. Okay. There is no land that is worth nothing and there's no land we're planning that's worth nothing. It always has a price. Mm. So if, if there's a valuation for five and you, can, and you want to let it go for four, then fine. If you want to let it go for five, it, that's also fine. What you're saying is, how do we know what it's worth? Mm. In my world, if it's got a valuation, it's worth. That's it. End what does story. the government say, though? What, what, what's, the stat- so, what's the law say? So the law says that all councils must act in the best interest for the people that voted them into power and must gain um, best value. Always best value. Mm-hmm. Where our council have let the people down who voted them into power, factually, not up for questioning, is they have not got best value for a fact. And they have put their friendships beyond that of the people that voted them into power. Mm. That's a fact. I'll go to court. I'll, I'll defend that. Isn't he's been arrested for? No. Okay. So and he's not under arrest now. Okay. But he, he was arrested for... Um, witness intimidation. Witness intimidation. And possible fraud. And possible fraud. These... Look, that's gone. Yeah. He, he, he but the Max Caller report hasn't gone, has it? That's still no. a, a powerful document, and it's very, very critical of Joe Anderson. Okay, that they're, they're all under investigation. Yeah. So there are very. I've got to be careful to say because I know there's going to be a court case someday, and I do not want to cause any Prejudice issue to the case yeah. anywhere. I think this where this is where Operation Frenetic gets involved, so basically the encrypted phones. Mm-hmm. Um, so if there was fraud and it was done on encrypted phones, in, in order, it's on in, that In case. order for them to extend the arrest, I believe, and I might be wrong, I believe that the judge needed justification. The justification at that time would have been the um, encrypted phones, evidence from that. But at the time it wasn't public knowledge mm. and no one knew, a lot of people didn't even know of the existence of these phones. And so they, did, they chose not to tell the judge. And so they thought themselves, as the police thought themselves, let's not carry on with the arrests, but everyone needs to be told that they are still under investigation, which is still the case today. So there are, there are many different issues out there, whether it be witness intimidation, whether it be fraud or corruption. There's a myriad amongst... I think there was 14 to 18 people that were arrested in total. Mm-hmm. Although when you look in the press, you think it's four or five. You yeah, go to four or five before. Yeah. It's about 14. Yeah, but even those people aren't named. It's only Joe that's named. 
So it looks like he's the, no, know, they the were fall named. guy. <laughs> no, no, they were named. Um, but not in, not in subsequent. I've read a few recent uh, articles, the Liam Thorpe one particularly, it only named Joe. It had four other individuals got no, arrested. No, they, they have been named. Yeah. Um, the Echo never named Derek Hatton mm. uh, because of their allegiance, mm. I believe. Um, and I think maybe slightly scared of Derek. So was he arrested for the same charges as Joe? I, I believe, look, it's only my view, I believe they were all arrested on a bullshit charge. Yeah. I think they were arrested on, on witness intimidation. Fishing expedition. And it was a fishing expedition. Yeah. I now believe that they are in a good place. See, whether they get prosecuted or not, right, for me, doesn't take away, well, for Joe, at least, and not just Joe, it's the Liverpool City Council, because it wasn't just Joe that was doing it. If you read the report, it was most of the members. The well, not, no, well, so when it I, comes I to reckon the, 30. You know, you know the, um, the, the, where they have to declare the gifts and hospitality mm. that they've received? Yeah. You know, nobody was updating that until they knew there was an investigation done by Max yeah. Caller, and then all of a sudden, they're starting to put things on the, yeah. on the uh, gifts register. Now, it's pretty damning that this corruption wasn't just Joe Anderson and Nick Cavana. It seemed to be endemic within the council itself and the incompetence of how they were running the operation, not collecting rent, for instance. They didn't even employ a rent officer, right? So that Liverpool City Council now has seven million quid's worth of rent uncollected. Not that I'm bothered about Liverpool City Council. I don't, I don't believe in what they're doing anyway, but it, it's for me, Regardless of what happens on a, on a criminal level, regardless of whether the case comes to fruition, that report needs to be read by everyone from Liverpool because not only does it tell you about the absolute total incompetence and fraud and corruption of Liverpool City Council, but it also tells you how it works, the mechanism behind this mayoral system, the councillors, and it's a really informative read, not sexy, but it's informative that I think people should read. Yeah, I think all people should read it, but just, just to your point... Um, the mechanism mm. that sit, sit, that sat below Joe, that was put in place by Joe, in order to ensure that what he, he wanted to happen did happen, is still there. Mm. Where Keir Starmer has made a massive error of judgment, he should have uh, suspended anyone that touched uh, Joe's table, and he didn't. Uh, I do believe in the May 23 elections, the nominations will be anyone but. Mm. I think they understand how, how bad it has been. Don't forget Keir Starmer was head of the CPS. The Max Caller report you well, talk about... he didn't about, do his job as head of the CPS, did he? No, he was plenty of people that he should have arrested or prosecuted, but he that. didn't. I get but go on. So as head of the CPS, he knew about uh, the issues in Liverpool, mm. I would say, long before the Conservatives. Absolutely. Yeah. When the Max Caller re report was read out in the House of Parliament, um, Labour Party stood up and said we, and thanked the Conservatives for keeping them abreast of the situation all the way through, and they agreed with the Max Caller report. So for anyone to turn around now and say that this is a, um, a partisan or political or a red or blue um, um, political issue, which Joe was saying at the time, is totally incorrect. It is Labour and Conservative together stamping out um, corrupt politicians, which, if you think about it, is very, very unusual. Mm. I understand. Just at all, Ali. <laughs> I understand that. It must have been that bad. I understand that people sling mud mm. over the aisle. But 
when it looks like politicians in general are going to be defamed for, for what's gone on, I think that's when they pull cover. Yeah. And this time, for whatever reason, I think this is going to be the biggest case of fraud, biggest case of fraud and corruption ever found in so, the UK. So you think that there are more charges to come? You think that there is a case that's going to be heard in a court? I think it's going to be enormous. Okay, right. So, so what we've seen so far is just a, you know, a trial calm, run. Calm before the storm. Okay, right. Um, there's another way of viewing this. I've heard from some people, which is that since Joe Anderson's gone, there's not one crane in the city. And that when he was here, there was 30 cranes and we had all this development. I'm not sure what they were developing because how many apartments do we actually need? But it's more. We need more. Where are they getting the people? Right, but so, anyway, anyway, before we go on, onto that side thing, is, is that, is that the, the, the sign of Liverpool's, you know, um, prosperous period mm. was visible through the cranes in the city. Now, they're gone. Okay. What are your thoughts on... He, he did what he had to do this is a theory. in order to bring business okay. into Liverpool because isn't it all corrupt? Isn't, every, isn't the system itself inherently corrupt? Okay. I don't know if this is just a, a, you know, a okay. devil's advocate position. So here's my view. Yeah. And, you know, you can pull it down if you wish. Liverpool is the centre of drugs for Europe and has been for many Lots. years. So... Drug dealers don't handle money. The deepest pockets in the city are developers. There are a couple of reasons why there are 35 deadlock sites in Liverpool and steel frames sticking around, piercing through the sky, that with no cranes above them. One is fun to fail. Council mm -hmm. liquidation, come out a year's time, someone else gets it and develops it out. The other one is because the wheels within the mechanism of a development normally um, get lubricated by drug money. So all those cranes were money laundering? <laughs> not all, not all. Um, and just going on to um, the politics of the city, yeah. um, I don't blame the developers. To your point before, I blame... They're just trying to make a raise and get ahead and do what they've got to do as business people, haven't they? If you, if you lead um, a pig mm. to the trough, he's going to eat. Mm. That is the it's way it is. Human nature. Human nature. Yeah. It's the people who are voted into power who are looking after the best interest of those people. Well, like a criminal tells you he's going to rob you, doesn't he? Yeah. A politician pretends he's there to serve your interests. And, and there lies the problem. Yeah, and they're, they're, it's the deception. It's yeah. the, you know, that's what we're up where, against. Where this gets quite scary... Mm and a bit weird is some of those politicians and those friendships are from that side of the fence and the thank yous have been in satchels mm. of money and I believe the police know all about that so I think there are certain politicians who won't be just getting done for fraud and corruption they'll be getting done for mm. drug laundering as well that, that opens up a whole the cattle fish. Well, that's where Operation Frenetic. Yeah, so Operation Sheraton, Operation Aloft, and Operation Frenetic are all. It's the biggest of all. Yeah. There's been 1,100 arrests at least on Operation Frenetic. Mm. They reckon there's thousands more to come. Mm. And it's the first time. If a drug dealer gets caught, and he'll get caught now through his phone, it is likely if he is a friend to a developer 
that the developer will also have a phone. Mm. The drug dealer will never have anything in his name by nature. A developer has to have everything in his name Fund in order to gain funding. his leverage on yeah. his funding. Yeah. I think the game changer here is it is no longer about fraud and corruption. Mm. This is all about pocket proceeds of crime. What assets are in the public that the police can seize? And that's what the police are going to be going after at the end of this trail. I talked, I talked with Neil Heffy. I uh, did a podcast with Neil Heffy well, 18 months ago. Yeah, good friend of mine. But mm. he talks about pocket a little bit. And I remember him telling me that pocket proceeds of crime act, right, is that when the police recover any money from goes locally yeah. 50% of it goes into their pocket sure. <laughs> so there's the incentive locally yeah locally yeah, but it, not, not their not their pocket as in the police pocket but into the the um, the confines of that area apparently it goes into the actual police fund or some of it yeah, the, yeah to be used yeah, right, yeah. so, so, so the, we'll see you just spending it the incentive the incentive yeah. is there for the yeah. police to go and find pocket isn't it you know and that other, the other half goes to, to uh, central government but your thought was like well, what <laughs> yeah but, but what, what's wrong with that well police seizing money and keeping it themselves they're not keeping it themselves are they mm, I don't know they're putting it into the system mm. okay well it <laughs> uh, uh, is my view on that yeah. then if I, I hate drugs. Mm. I hate anything to do with drugs. If people want to make money out of the misery of other people uh, and they have assets that's been out of that misery of those people. I'm not against the I, I assets. Get I get that. But yeah. when, when that crime um, comes to fruition, if you like, and there is an asset there and that money goes into the local police in order for the police to the give a better service. should pay the police. Do, do, yeah, maybe. But don't forget, I've had death threats through all this. Mm. And I had a 24-hour surveillance outside of this hotel because of the death threats that I got, because I was a mouthpiece against the collusion and corruption that was going on. Do you think being as public as you are about these issues, which, you know, it's quite, it's quite ballsy what you're doing. It's not ballsy, it's true. Regardless of whether it's true, you're putting yourself out there and you're saying things that could create risk for yourself. Do you think being as public as you are makes it more safe for you, in a sense? No, no. I'm sure JFK said the same. Yeah. Um, th these situations that I'm in now are there because I'm calling them out because I feel, um, for the first time, strong enough mm. over the last two years to state factually that I know. Mm. Can I prove it legally? No, but I'm not a detective. But do I know of conversations and do I know of times and situations and can I recant them? Yeah, I can. Mm. Do I think they're corrupt? Yes. Do I think that inclusion with, with the darkened world of, of gangsters and, and fraud and corruption? Of course I do. Mm. I have no doubt in my mind. So for me to turn around and say, this has to stop, I'm... Yeah, possibly put my life at risk. Well, I know it put my life at risk because I had police outside here for 24-7 mm. for six weeks uh, for threats on both mine and my wife's life. Mm. But you come to a point where you think, this has to stop. And, you know, people turn down to me all the time and say, but surely this happens all over the world and surely, you know, you understand that. And I say, but it has to stop. And I do believe Liverpool can be a catalyst for the new dawn and a new beginning. Well, it has to be because the Max Caller report is, is pretty damning in saying that Liverpool has to turn this around. And he's, in the end, he's quite confident that it can be done. 
right? He's positive about the future. If the right people make the right moves, do the right things, that we can regain, you know, the ground we've just conceded after spending so many years rebuilding trust, faith and confidence in Liverpool as a serious city to be, you know, uh, taken seriously mm. across the world, all of a sudden that has to be rebuilt again. Yeah, okay, so this is just a, a mammoth story, even though we've been going for two and a half hours, 40 minutes. I don't even think we've scratched the surface of it. I think we could probably talk about this all night, um, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it again. But I think as we move towards the final part of the podcast now, is that, uh, even though we've just spent two and a half hours talking about problems, problems in Liverpool, problems with corruption and fraud, I like to talk about solutions. So how do we rebuild the reputation in Liverpool. What are your ideas, Lawrence, to take us to the next phase? How do we solve these immense political, economic, financial problems that we find ourselves in as a city, as a people? What are your thoughts on that? I, I don't know whether I'm that person to, to give that answer, but I'll give it my best shot as I see it. So uh, it, it is clear, I think, the agenda over the next... Uh, 12 months will be there will be arrests and charges I think the uh, ministers will use that as a trajectory to take control and the reason why government ministers take control of Liverpool yes yeah and I think that's a must that then brings stability to the city uh, companies will want to come here then stops the rot doesn't it, it stops it? the rot um, it then gives us a chance to replatform, uh, and I would like to think that Liverpool would get angry at how they've been abused by the political system within the city. And on that basis, I do believe there is no better reason to get angry than fraud and corruption. To take food out of children's mouths in Liverpool, as 30% of our children that are born below the poverty line, to actually seize control because of that I think gets that person off that couch that's never voted before I think is reason enough and I would like to think that the Labour Party either dovetails with us or if it goes against us I think it's going to be a very difficult task for them to win now when I'm saying us there is no us but there, there needs to be new narrative and I understand how to create narrative, and I understand how to bring in investments, and I understand how to create jobs. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Uh, I can deliver many properties in the city uh, in a Gandhi-style sort of operation, in a give-back. Look, no one is getting anything out of me. That money goes straight to the bottom line. That money can be shared between the 30 wards. And then we can earn 50 million a year. So do you mean money generated by the city of Liverpool from developments, business, enterprise? Only developments. Only developments. That, that is then rerouted so, to deprived wards and borders yes. of Liverpool. Yes, and also first-time buyers. So um, it is fair to say that Liverpool has been city-centric, centre-centric for many many years under Joe so Stewart. When, when you say city centric what, what do you mean do you mean all like, the development just goes yeah. on the city centre and nothing goes out yeah. and the out, out, outreaches and that's a, that's that's a fact yeah 
what I'm saying is it is clear that Liverpool City Centre is the driver for value. So let's just say it would cost me £40,000 to build an apartment. And let's just say I'm building a block of 500 apartments. Uh, and I can sell them for, say, 200 k ago. That £150,000 goes straight to the 30 wards. Mm. So let's just say you're earning £50 million a year. And there's plenty of ways to make that be worth more in how you wrap it as you are a local government. And when you sell it to someone like Prudential or whoever it may be, because of the strength of the security that you give them. So rather than relying on taxes solely, what you're saying is you generate your we, own... We become our own business. Yeah, yeah. We never sell an asset again to a developer unless it's gone through absolute scrutiny. And even then, I don't want to do it. And it's sold at the right value, if at all. Because if it's worthwhile, we should gain a profit for it. it. Look, there's plenty of sites out here that's owned privately and can be sold. Why does the council need to sell anything? If it is good enough for the developer, it's good enough for us. It's good enough for us to make the money from it. And it's good enough for us to plough back into the communities that need it most. Things like youth centres that are closed down years ago, kids are now standing on 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 on, uh, on street corners. But why is that? Because it's not being funded. Because it's not being funded. The funding that's there now is anchored and it has always gone to friendships and the political and the business elite. And I'm going to throw in um, charities as well. Mm. They all drink from that same trough. I am hated by those people. Hated. I would never be invited to a do. I haven't been invited to a do in the pool in years. I wouldn't go. I don't like any of them. I don't like what they stand for. You, mate. <laughs> and I don't, I don't like the way they drink from that trough. I understand why it works, I understand how it works. What I'm saying is, imagine creating your own wealth that isn't anchored by government funding, that can be used for the most severest of declined wards. Let's go youth centres. Youth centres is something that is really important to me. I grew up in Walton Youth Centre. I was there all the time. I learned to play ping pong there. Big part of my life. Those kids now are on street corners. Imagine putting them into a youth centre, but this time you align a B&M or a Home and Bargain or, or, or a Matalan or a Signature Living. They become the conduit to that uh, youth centre. And those kids, instead of looking at the kid in the BMW, who probably is going to go to jail now because he's getting caught on encrypted phones, or is going to get shot by his mate because he owes him money. But that's where kids are going because they're the kids in the BMW, so they're the kids who are making it in this world. They're not, but that's how they think it is. They can then look at those kids coming through who become a chef or become an MD or, or starting a business or, 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 or get mentored by someone like me. So the companies delve in to those youth centers, they treat them as their own, they use that as their social responsibility. That's where the, the entrepreneurial socialism comes into it. And they use that as the conduit to bring into their business. So I could go to them and say, do you want to be a joiner? Do you want to be a spark? Do you want to be a chef? Do you want to be an MD? What, what do you want to be? I can give more them jobs. And I'm a small business in comparison to a, a B&M who's worth four and a half billion. And I think those companies would jump at that opportunity because the future is about how do these companies seem, seamlessly give back? And I think companies will be rewarded in value based on how they seamlessly give back. I think that's the future. So it's one thing to understand business, but it's another thing to be able to allow businesses to step in, look at what they've done to me. Mm. I stepped in thinking I was doing the right thing. I created homeless shelters. Homeless shelters that have been recreated by other cities, and yet mine took me out. They took me out because I was a political threat. 
businessmen with their sharpened skill set far superior to many, many politicians. The problem is, though, most businessmen wouldn't... Wouldn't they jump into that arena? Because it's it's so limiting for them as a businessman. The money's no good, right? I, I don't no, 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 no. They've earned the money. Okay, that's different. So yeah. if they're towards the end of part of the career and you want to get back to the community, then yeah. And, and not even yeah. the end of the career. Yeah. I'm saying that the future is about businesses seamlessly giving back. Mm. The world's changing. If you are now now billionaire, you are hated. That's mm. a fact. You are naturally hated. But if you are naturally giving back... And I'm not talking about writing a bleeding cheque. I'm yeah. talking about using your sharpened skill set to make that cheque go further. Using your sharpened skill set in order to make the practices of, since time immemorial with councils, you know, 11.7 million homeless. Mm. I could probably deliver the same service for three. But see, I, think this, I think this is largely born from your sense of identity. Right, you know who you are. You're from Liverpool. You're a scouser. You're proud of your heritage and who you are. And you, you know, just you have a you have a, an attraction to the city, don't you? And what the city stands. I only for. cared about the city. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm saying. So that's it. Seems to me that that's one of your motivating factors. Mm. Is that you want to give back to this place that has created you and created mm. me and others and stuff. I think that's what defines you as being different because the guys from B&M ain't going to be developing Liverpool, are they? They've got no... no um, they don't call themselves Scousers. You know what I mean? No. But, but you've got a, a, a deep root here, you mm. know, that is you know, giving you this inspiration to try and do something... So, so I'll have a lasting legacy for, for you know, Lawrence Kenwright and Liverpool. Yeah, it's not about my legacy. I'm not, I, I don't care about money. I don't care about legacy. Yeah. But uh, um, some years ago, I started getting really political and, and I wanted to really understand it and I really do now. And I turned around to Kate when the Echo were talking about me running for mayor and I said, I, I, I'd love the opportunity to do that. I mm. think, you know, uh, I don't want the wage. I don't want anything. I want to be... And this Gandhi-like figure, I think, is how I picture it in my mind it's not about um gratification it's not about money it's about giving back so uh kate argued with me kate said you know you must be mad why would you ever want to jump into that arena mm. and get politically beaten up mm. and i said so imagine we can almost obliterate and destroy austerity amongst children mm. how amazing would, would that be because we've gone out there to develop and create uh, give first time buyers uh, a leg up when they want to buy a home. Do all the things that are um, intrinsic to people staying in the city to make sure that that community's there. If, if we can tie that in and make sure that austerity is gone from Liverpool and Liverpool then becomes that pebble mm. that people go, oh, Are you going okay. to deal with Liverpool's deep state? Do you think you're ruthless enough to deal with these people who are really ruthless and if not how would you manage to well i'll answer that with stay honest in a um, sea of do, do, do you think i'm scared of anyone no no no, no. okay so i've had the death threats haven't i so yeah. i'm not bothered about that um do you think i'm worried about political stones i've had all that so what am i worried about mm. i've had all that i don't care about that this is about i know i have a proven skill set and i know it's a sharpened skill set drain the mercy <laughs> and I know, and yeah, <laughs> Trumpian. And I know I want to seamlessly give back. And I, I also know that the world has to change. Why can't that change start here? And I don't think there's a better time for change because of the narrative that's going to be gifted to us when we go after the council 
if it's proven to be correct, and I believe it is, I think a lot of people will be disgusted and how they've been treated. Well, I was disgusted at that Max Caller report. Really I, and you're, you're an extremely intelligent guy mm. who didn't know about that in his own city. Mm. So if you don't know and you're really informed, most people who you know just go about the daily, daily work don't know about well, it. Well, I'm going to put it in the show notes so anyone that's watching, read it. Just read it, you know, it's... And it's non-political. Yeah, I know. This is done with the Labour Party and the Conservatives together as one. And even though it's damning, the author still holds back. He can see that he's not telling you everything, but not not through uh, any kind of, like, lies or omission, either because the story's so big or he doesn't want to do any further damage to the to the city, you know. No, they are wary of the view that they are coming laced with conservatism mm. into a Labour-run city. Mm. But I believe we have no option. Mm. We have no option because we need to stabilise. Otherwise, we'll be hemorrhaging for years to come yeah, totally with agree. that legacy of, oh, it's fraud and corruption, you know, Liverpool's bad. No, no, it needs to stop. We need to stop. And if it means that, that we're tarnished with the conservative brush, then so be it. But at least we're not going to have a deficit. And at least when they come into our garden, they're going to at least look after the beds of the garden are going to make sure that it looks well, that it comes out well, that, that they can turn down the end of it. Yeah, and, and pat themselves on the back and say, look what we've done with Liverpool, it's amazing. I don't care if it's blue or red. I only care what's best for the city. And at this moment of time, if the blue want to come over and help um, uh, the city in any way whatsoever, my arms are open. I don't see why any other scouser would say no to it unless they are politically motivated. This is no longer about politics. This yeah. is all about what the remedy is for the city. You're right. I mean, that, that totally is the way to look at it. It's not about party politics. And that's the problem in Liverpool is people can be extremely tribal over party politics. And, and regardless of whether that party is beneficial to the interests of the people of Liverpool, if that party isn't representing us and isn't doing anything for us, dump them. You shouldn't have loyalty to a party, a political party. It should be they work for us. They simply work for us, and you know there's um, there's an argument to be made that we shouldn't have political parties at all because councillors, elected representatives, should be representing the constituents, not the, the Labour Party or the Tory Party. It's, they represent us, and they should be carrying out our wishes, not what the chief whip tells them to do, not how the chief whip tells them how to vote. If it's against the interests of the people who elected them, it's it's there not. Shouldn't be, there shouldn't be a chief there whip. needs an overhaul. The, the entire political system in this city and the country needs a, a massive overhaul. I don't so, know. So, so how does that happen? You're the man to do it. No, 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 no I'm not. The, what I'm saying is, I'm is nominating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well. Uh, Lawrence, we've been three hours, right, and I've loved every minute of it. Um, I'm sure we'll do it again, and maybe another three hours. Um, have you got any any final words to to, uh, to leave us with before we we wrap up this podcast? I believe the next six months are going to be very tough. I think um, scousers are used to going through tough terrain, but I think when we come out of it in a year's time, I think if we are strong enough, then pushing back against the political powers will be the best thing we ever do. How that looks, I don't know. All I know is there is clearly a movement that will be empowered by the negativity of what's going to happen over the next six months, which hopefully will get us through the gate into a new world. And if that happens, I think Liverpool can go on from strength to strength. 
and hopefully take back that number two spot from Manchester. Uh, okay, Lawrence Kenwright has been a, a pleasure. Really buzzing to chat to you. I've wanted to do it for a while, and it was great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thank you.